Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, Brazil's President Lula da Silva is meeting the Chinese leader Xi Jinping at the climax of his official visit to China. Now, there was a large ceremony to greet Mr. Lula when he arrived. The two leaders are expected to sign trade deals and to also discuss the war in Ukraine. Let's get more now from our correspondent, Zhao da Silva, who's keeping across this story. Hello there to you, Zhao. So what can we expect from today's meeting? Well, let me first start by saying that, indeed, this meeting is a huge deal for both sides. We just saw in those live pictures earlier of the, the huge welcome ceremony for, for President Lula and his delegation at the Great Hall of the People, red carpet, um, guard of honor, all of it. And, and waiting for, for, for his delegation was a very large group of high-level Chinese officials. And that really signals uh, the importance that the two sides attach uh, to, to this visit. Now, we don't know exactly what's on the agenda uh, for, for this meeting, but there's at least a couple of issues that you mentioned there that are likely to make it into the talks. First, of course, is trade and investment. Uh, the Brazilian side has said they expect to sign more than 20 bilateral agreements, as you mentioned there, and it signals their desire to strengthen uh, economic relations with China. President Lula, uh, which has returned to power only months ago, knows he needs uh, Brazil's largest trading partner if he is to deliver on his promises uh, to fight poverty and really boost Brazil's uh, stagnant economy. And China, well, China is also interested in consolidating trade ties with Brazil. Beijing is, is facing growing tensions with the United States, which is its largest trading partner. So it is looking uh, to boost uh, its company's presence in other markets. And Brazil, of course, being Latin America's uh, largest economy, makes it an obvious choice. Now, the other issue that could make it onto the talks and that you mentioned earlier in your introduction is, of course, the war uh, in Ukraine. Neither of them has joined Western uh, nations in imposing sanctions on Russia, but both are very keen to play the role of mediators in the conflict and have offered ideas on what they think is the best path forward uh, towards peace. Uh, and Xiao, I wonder how closely is the state visit being followed at home in Brazil? How do Brazilians regard China? Well, I think for, for Brazilians right now, their economy is stagnant. So. Um, there's a lot of hardship back home, and they're looking at this visit, this visit with hope. They know that uh, China plays a huge role uh, in the Brazilian economy. It is uh, Brazil's largest trading partner. So what they want to see is, of course, uh, this, uh, this, this meeting between uh, President Xi Jinping and President Lula translate into a series of trade deals, investment deals that will ultimately create jobs back home. So, so that's what people back home in Brazil want to see. Uh, the other side of this is uh, President Lula really wants to portray himself as a world leader once again. He wants to put Brazil back on the world stage. Under his predecessor, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, Brazil uh, pursued a bit of an isolationist foreign policy.
policy. And, of course, Lula wants to change that. He wants Brazil back on the international stage. Earlier this year, he was in the United States in February, and now he's in China meeting with another uh, world leader, Xi Jinping. Okay. Jean de Silva, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. A judge in Brazil's Supreme Court has ordered former President Jair Bolsonaro to face questioning over the riots that took place in the capital, Brasilia, a week after President Lula da Silva took office. Bolsonaro has been asked to appear before federal police within 10 days to answer questions over accusations that he incited the rioters who invaded the country's presidential palace, Congress and the Supreme Court on January 8th this year. The judge had previously ruled on January 13th on a request by prosecutors that Bolsonaro be placed under investigation in the case. However, the ruling was postponed as Bolsonaro was in Florida in the United States at the time. Bolsonaro was in the U.S. for three months after his defeat in the election and returned to Brazil on March 30th. Prosecutors had asked for Bolsonaro to face questioning over a video he posted online two days after the riots that questioned the legitimacy of Lula's victory in the election. The video was later deleted. The prosecutors, however, said their probe on Bolsonaro would not be limited to the video, but a full investigation of all acts before and after January 8th. Meanwhile, the former president has denied any involvement in the riots, in which more than 1,800 people are arrested. Bolsonaro now faces several legal woes back at home. He faces a total of four Supreme Court investigations that could send him to prison. He also faces 16 cases before Brazil's Superior Electoral Tribunal that could strip him of his right to run for office for eight years, taking him out of the 2026 presidential race. Time now for a hint of nostalgia, a trip down memory lane to 1950, a time when the Jules Rimet Trophy was the object of desire for the 13 competing nations at the fourth FIFA World Cup in Brazil. Italy had arrived in South America as defending champions, but there was no clear favorite for the first tournament in 12 years following the outbreak of World War II. Training methods had apparently progressed since the Third World Cup in Italy. On the pitch, the goals came thick and fast, at an average of four per game. Uruguay, Brazil, Spain and Sweden emerged as the four group winners. They would contest a round-robin phase, which would determine the identity of the new world champions. Fortunately for the organizing committee, the sixth and final match of that round-robin phase featured Brazil and Uruguay, both of whom still had a chance of lifting the trophy. The hosts needed only a draw to secure their first world title. Uruguay had to win. Sunday, July the 16th, and with kickoff still several hours away, the streets of Rio de Janeiro were packed with people keen to see the biggest game in Brazil's history. I remember standing in the queue for tickets. They were selling newspapers with the headline, Brazil are world champions. They were convinced it would happen. A crowd approaching 175,000 was present at Maracanã to witness Brazil's coronation. For Ademir, Friassa, Augusto and Zizinho, the undoubted stars of the Seleção, their lives would never be the same again. It was the best team Brazil ever had. Some say it was the one from 1970, but the 1950 side was better. 
The first half was a tense affair and ended goalless, although Uruguay did strike the post. The second 45 minutes would be a different story. In the second half, Brazil scored first through Friassa. It was 1-0. At that stage, Brazil were world champions. Also fortunate enough to secure a ticket to the game was a 34-year-old lawyer based in Sao Paulo. The match started and we went 1-0 ahead. That gave us a stronger chance of becoming the champions. The destiny dictated that the Uruguayans would draw level at 1-1. But even with that scoreline, Brazil would still be world champions. Yes, Juan Schiaffino's 66th minute equaliser promised to be little more than an unfortunate blemish on an otherwise memorable afternoon. That is until Alcides Gija raced clear and fired in a shot that beat Barbosa at his near post. It was 2-1 to Uruguay and 11 minutes later they were crowned world champions for a second time. No great literate man, no great sociologist or psychiatrist will ever be able to spell out what really happened that day. No one could have imagined that Brazil would not win that title. Jules Rimet himself thought Brazil were the champions when he got in the lift to take the cup down to the pitch. That's when Uruguay scored and won the tournament. He asked, who do I give the cup to? Then he saw Varela. My brother-in-law, who's married to my wife's sister, took me to the airport so that I could go back to Sao Paulo. When we were in the car, I told him, if I become the president of the CBD, I'll win a World Cup for Brazil. I still remember Ari Barroso, the most popular commentator at the time. He used to do a summary at the end of a program for Radio Tupi. Ari Barroso came on and said, Good evening, I have nothing to tell you. And that was the end of it. He didn't do the program at all. He just said, I have nothing to say. He was really upset, just angry and disappointed. 64 years on in 2014, all of Brazil will be hoping for a happier ending. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, April 20. 2023 so I have been told 420 420 that has a whole lot of meetings for a whole lot of different people around the world I guess puff puff pass right you can watch Friday and all of that smoky do all that for 420 right or 420 is Columbine they were talking about that in Brazil get to go shoot up the whole school kill some niggers even reference to Adolf Hitler 420 means a lot of things to a lot of different folks I reckon anywho for us it is the Catherine Massey book club 14th installment this is kind of long but this is the penultimate session so next week is all done with 
Negroes with Kinky Hair in Brazilian Soccer, written by Mario Filo, translated by Jack A. Draper. The third we're picking up in Chapter 6 in the text. Pele should be coming to us this week, and we'll ride out with him this week and next week. The audio segments that we heard, one, two, three. So the first one, they talked about uh, the current president of Brazil, uh, Lula da Silva, his visit to China last week where he discouraged the dollar, talked about we got to work together, and China's our biggest trade partner. White people in North America were not happy about any of that. What do you mean going over here and you're trying to strengthen ties with these slant-eyed chinks and they told you they're responsible for the Rona and you talk about you can go over here and work with them like do what? Then they say, then they even say that they're blaming white people for the situation in Ukraine. They're not going to put sanctions on Russia and all that. Like, oh my God, what is going on? The second segment, Jair Bolsonaro got to testify. Where have I heard that before? Former president has got to testify for hooliganism that it seems like he encouraged, helped foment, as they say. Last segment, man, that soccer game that we heard last week, the World Cup Championship 1950 between Brazil and Uruguay, I said last week I was still kind of staggered like to have approximately a quarter of a million people at a live event at that time period like I, there is no event that I can think of where they had 220,000 people in a stadium for a baseball game, a football game, a basketball game, the Super Bowl, brain damage, Mike Tyson, like it's nothing I can think of where they've had that many people. It's just staggering. And this was such a big deal. They do have video from that event. Oh, man, you can see some of the kinky haired Nick Rose on the Brazilian team. Ooh-wee. I would not want to be them getting out of that stadium because you could just see the ocean of people and they all look like they would be classified as white. It's not one, at least what I saw, not one kinky head in the stadium except the folks running around on the field man leave quickly we will go ahead and get started we are in chapter six mario filos the black man in brazilian soccer Catherine massey book club audio segment one the uruguayans were not englishmen for this reason, they did not like the dance America did against Peñarol at all, because it was a dance in the fine style of Tico Tico no Fubo. The mulatos and blacks of America, they were almost all mulatos and blacks, were playing as if dancing on the field and quickly, more and more quickly, to the Chorinho of Zequinha de Abreu. The Uruguayan's revenge was to touch the Brazilian wound, Nosotros somos los campeones del mundo. That game counted for nothing. The game that had counted was that of 16 July 1950, when Obdulio Varela, with two fingers, held out the front of his blue jersey to show it to the Brazilians. Es la celeste. The memory of Obdulio Varela remained alive as an ideal. Each Brazilian player tried to be an Abdulio Varela, kicking with the foot, 
hitting with the arm to show he was a man. Woe to the one who seemed weak, that which no one would would accept in Brazilian soccer any more was a gesture of weakness. Wearing the jersey of a team or of a side, a Brazilian player had to withstand everything. Carlisle finished off Oswaldo, Bangu's goalkeeper, by passing his hand over his head, messing up his cowlick. He did that one time by chance. Cowlick, Oswaldo, lost his head. He went after Carlisle and tried to fight him, having to be held back like the Chinese man of the anecdote. For Ondino Vera, Cowlick was the greatest goalkeeper Brazil had ever had. He had everything to be a permanent starter on the Brazilian side, and a messed up Cowlick ended Oswaldo's career. It was enough for there to be a Fluminense versus Bangu, where Carlisle passed by Oswaldo and messed up his Cowlick. Cowlick had to be held back by force while the crowd whistled in a deafening chorus, Tweet! Tweet! Cowlick went on to become Tweet Tweet. He would come onto the field and be saluted with whistles, Tweet! 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 In the mouth of Bangu's tunnel, from where one could observe the long, almost hanging nose of Ondino Vieira, there stood the Silverinhas, Guilherme da Silveira Filho, and Joaquim Guilherme da Silveira. This was to show that they did not just support the factory's team with money, so much so that they exposed themselves, staying there as if in a showcase for all to see. In the good tradition of Bangu, there were few whites, Cowlick or Tweet Tweet, Rafanelli, a back who went wherever Ondino Vieira went, Deseo Estevez, still young, and Nivio, a player from Minas Gerais, good with the ball and with a powerful shot. The rest were mulattoes and blacks, Mendonca, Miriam, Rui, who had started on the Brazilian side but was on his way down, Djalma, the man of seven instruments, who had left Vasco crying because he wanted to go inside during the half of a Vasco versus Arsenal of London, but Flavio Costa ordered him to stay and he went. Manessas, who alternated on the wing with Moacir Bueno, Zizinho, Joel, and Vermeljo, so black that he earned the nickname Red of downtrodden blood, dark. If Bangu did not have a great team, the Silverinhas would not appear in the tunnel. The players needed to know that they could count on them. This was to make up for the difference of the jersey, because since the 16th of July, they had gone back to talking about jerseys. The cry of Abdulio Varela could still be heard, Es la celeste. The jersey weighed again in the balance. In the decision, the victory went to Fluminense, who had slyly accepted the name Little Team. It was the year of Castillo, the milkman. When the ball had beaten Castillo and looked like it would go in, it hit the bar. Contrary to Bangu, Fluminense had whitened their team. They had only two mulattoes, Pinheiro and Edson one of whom had a curve in his spine 
and played like a human tower of Pisa, on the verge of falling, but without stopping an instant on the field, and one black player, Didi. Carlyle, white, missing an ear or part of an ear, which caused him to pose only in profile on the side of the complete ear, ended up with Cowlick. Zeze Moreira played him there, up front, to bring to despair the backs and goalkeeper of the other team. Orlando, the drop of gold, got the leftovers, but the one who assisted the two coming and going was Didi. For Bangu, the one who decided the championship was Didi, breaking the leg of Mendonca, a perfect crime. They only found out Mendoka had broken his leg afterward. Didi had lifted up the sole of his cleats as if in self-defense. And no one had the right whatsoever to get angry. Before Ondino Vieira proclaimed that the championship was a war, Carlito Rocha, looking raptly at the Botafogo players, wanting them tall and strong, and referring to them affectionately as beautiful horses, seeing them trot onto the field, came out with this phrase, soccer is a game for men. And as it was a game for men, and we had lost the world championship, we were not men. The conclusion that Brazilians had reached on July 16, 1950. Fluminense was on Didi's side. If the black man had not defended himself, the one with the broken leg would be him, because Mendonca's challenges were for real. Thus, 1951 had debuted another great black man of Brazilian soccer, Didi. He played on his feet, except when he apparently lost his balance to thread a pass. Zeze Moreira pointed out that black man with the long neck like a seal's, balancing his head like the greatest striker of Brazil, greater than Zizinho. And there were people who only went to soccer games to see Zizinho. The ball always in reach of his foot for a poke, for a dry and short dribble, for a shot to stuff the net full. What Zinzinho did with the ball was hard to believe. Didi had brought something new. Almost without looking, or at least giving the impression he wasn't looking, he would drive a pass 30, 40 meters to assist a Carlisle or an Orlando in front of the goal alone. And when he took a free kick, he could put spin on the ball, topping the barrier and surprising the goalie. It became known as the dry leaf. Beyond that, he had the advantage of being tough. Zinho was also tough, but maybe he was paying for July 16. That fateful date did not go out of Brazilians' minds. This was the time to get rough, to shove with the hands and strike with the feet. Thus, those who made an impression were the ones who, at the right moment, got rough. Not just the players, also the coaches, the masseuses, as in the case of Mario Américo, the Vascal masseuse, who had become a popular figure as the messenger pigeon of Flavio Costa. When Mario Américo came onto the field running as if he were betting on a race, his bald black head shining in the sun or in the glow of the floodlights, it was not just to help a fallen player. 
especially because the coach needing to give instructions would make a gesture and thus injure a player on his team. Without being touched, the player would fall, writhing around. It was time for Mario Americo. He bet on a race that he himself ran, his knees pumping up and down like pistons of a motor at full speed, and he was all smiles, joyful, happy. He would get down next to the fallen player, dump out the bag filled with pieces of ice, and never stop talking. This is what explains the nickname Messenger Pigeon. In the Rio-Sao Paulo decision of 1952, he was, however, more than a messenger pigeon. Eli, though empado, acting like Obdulio Varela, the great captain, who was going to be in the Pan-American Championship, kicked Pinga, Pinga, who did not distinguish himself by his courage, grabbed Eli's arm. Even the president of Sporting Portuguesa of Sao Paulo entered the field to fight, to yell. Eli and Penga were thrown out of the game by Mr. Elife, but they did not leave, still in the middle of the ruckus. Mario Americo was seen to enter the field and throw himself into the brawl. The first thing he did was to slap Augusto Isaias, the president of Sporting Portuguesa. This should have been a case of Augusto Isaias never wanting to see Mario Americo's face again. In front of the crowd, in the biggest stadium in the world, a masseuse, a very black one at that, raising his hand to the very white face of a club president. Contrary to what was expected, the president of Sporting Portuguesa was dazzled. It was a man like that that he needed, and he would not rest until he could bring Mario Americo to Sao Paulo. The offer was so good that Mario Americo did not hesitate. He left behind all the years he had spent at Vasco and went to be the masseuse of Sporting Portuguesa in Sao Paulo. The Rio Sao Paulo game had hardly ended when the Brazilian side left for Santiago, Chile, where they were going to dispute the first Pan American Championship, the CBD could not even think of calling on Flavio Costa. Otherwise, they would reopen the wound of 1950. Instead, they called Zeze Moraira, Carioquia champion, coach of 1951. The press, except those who were tricolor fans, did not like the choice. It was because Zeze used a zonal defense. He would attack with two, at most three, sometimes with just one. Thus, for the columnist, still embittered about 1950 and fearing a repeat, was Brazilian anti-soccer. Zezé Moreira began by not calling up Zezinho, which represented for the Maestro Ziza fan club a heresy worthy of an Inquisition bonfire. From the 1950 side, including reserves and starters, Zezé Moreira kept only Castilho, Eli, Bauer, Bigode, Adamer, Balthazar, Fracta, and Ipojucan. Of the eight, there were three who were really starters, although Friaca had come in to replace Maneka, who was hurt, 
and had scored Brazil's only goal on the day of shame. Begove, perhaps, had been called up so there would be no doubt that he was a man. That was a thing that Zeze Moraira would never allow. Cowardice. So then, why Ipojuken? Zeze Moraira also had a weakness for the virtuoso, something Ipojuken was without the slightest doubt. The novelty of Zeze Moraira was that of the three goalkeepers. Beyond Castillo, Oswaldo, Belisa, the player who used to attach a comic book to the post during Botafogo practices and Cabeceau, the others were Djalme Santos, Arati, who had an amazing touch, Brandauzinho, Ruarjinho, also a fighter, Julinho, about whom no one knew how he was not called up in 1950, Rubens, who had come to Flamengo and seemed to play with the ball attached to his cleats by a string, Didi, Pinga, and the rediscovered Rodriguez. The side just held one practice and then left that same night for Santiago. It seemed to be a pack-it-up-and-send-it situation. To make things worse, before Holy Saturday, Brazil tied Peru. Brazilians had not yet lost their shame about ties. There was a national revolt. Only a few tricolor fans, thinking more about Fluminense than about Brazil, did not find the tie with Peru a supreme ignominy. The popular indignation was so great that the Judas of the Holy Saturday had nothing to do with that of Iscariot, who had sold the Savior for thirty pieces of silver. All the Judases hung on posts throughout Rio were Zeze, Moraireses. To eliminate any doubt, nailed to each Judas was a sign that read Zeze, Moraires. Until, that is, the Brazil versus Uruguay match. Brazil with the yellow shirt of the CBD and Uruguay with the Celeste. That game indeed was the rematch of July 16. For the first time since 1950, the two sides were meeting each other, and Brazil won in everything, in soccer, in kicks, in shoves, in slaps. The spirit of the great captain had possessed Eli do Amparo. He was a black man who made a point of demonstrating that black men did not flee from the front, exaggerating a little to avenge Barbosa and Bigode. To end that story that it was black players who had brought about the loss of July 16, 1950, or black Brazilians since the Uruguayan hero was the mulatto Obdulio Varela. In the first instant, Eli do Amparo raised his hand to Obdulio Varela. Obdulio Varela, before the fury of Eli do Amparo, was retreating and mostly not reacting, merely inquiring, what is this? Bigode was on the bench with the reserves. He could not resist. He too came onto the field to go after Obdulio Varela. All of Brazil was salivating at this delectable feast on the radio. It mattered little that all of it was of no particular use. The Brazilian side was winning easily, playing much more soccer. Against the force of the Brazilian attack, 
the Uruguayan defense could do nothing. It was not just a victory, it was a blowout, and it was a dance. Why the rough play then? It was because Obdulio Varela's shoving of Bigode in 1950 was stuck in the throat of every Brazilian. No one doubted the superiority of Brazilian soccer. There was a different kind of doubt that the Brazilians could not perform in a crucial moment, and yet the circumstances of 1950 were not reproduced in Santiago de Chile. Instead of Brazil versus Uruguay, it was another Brazil versus Spain, with the difference of the kicks, shoves, and slaps. Facing the Uruguayans and Obdulio Varela, all the grievances returned, grievances more regarding themselves than the Uruguayans. In a certain sense, one could understand an Eli do Amparo caught up in the iconoclastic fury. The Brazilian fans had been bemoaning since 1950 not having an Abdulio Varela. It was necessary to show that Brazil had an Eli do Amparo capable of going after Abdulio Varela. For this reason, the side that had left Brazil melancholically without raising the hopes of the fans, made a point of winning at soccer with all their heart and soul. They preferred a victory peppered with incidents and boos to a greater and cleaner triumph without any defects. Even with the Dionysian drunkenness of the one against Spain, that of the bullfights of Madrid. It was a fury of vengeance, Brazilian style which was not placated even with the blowout, Bigode had gotten the best of Obdulio Varela. He could hold his head high again. Eli, though, Amparo was parading around the field, his long legs bent, his chest puffed out like a fighting cock after it makes the other rooster sing like a hen. For Nilton Santos, however, it had not been enough. He had not played in 1950, nor did he have any beef with Obdulio Varela, but he had inherited the blush of the day of shame. The score was four to one, and there was just one minute remaining until the end of the game. Mario Amerigo stuck his finger way up to show that the game would end in one minute. This was when Nilton Santos saw near him, rather careless, the scorer of the goal of the Uruguayan victory in 1950, Gigia. He could take the ball away from him, dribble around him, and do what he always did, fake going to one side and then go to the other. He didn't do any of these things. Rather, he hauled back and kicked Gigia. It was a penalty. Nilton Santos did not even worry. Four to one or four to two, what difference did it make? But he had kicked Gagia. The Uruguayan ghost would no longer haunt the midnights of Brazilian soccer. It was a victory that unburdened all of Brazil. Thus the reception of the heroes of the Pan-American Championship, of the true world champions, greater than that of the soldiers when they returned from war. Chapter 6, Part 3 there were so many people in Galeao Airport that one had the impression, faced with that sea of humanity coming and going like the tide, 
that all of Rio was there. Nothing like this had yet been seen. It was a city unburdened, with a light and joyful heart that was going to give thanks for a victory. It mattered little in that moment that it had come almost two years late, and that above all it did not change anything. Uruguay was still world champion. It was a gesture that, in all of Brazil and Uruguay, after one more defeat, the Uruguayans would repeat, two fingers held up on the left hand and one finger extended alone on the right hand, which meant Uruguay 2, Brazil 1. The date did not need to be recalled, July 16, 1950. Brazilians were continually scratching the wound, especially in Maracana. The goal next to the platform of honor was named Gijia's goal. It was enough for a ball to hit the strings of the fatal side. The announcers would yell, The ball shook the bridal veil of Gijia's goal. But Brazilians had loved the win in Santiago with all their heart and soul, perhaps more so because it was felt deep in their hearts as a nation. One could no longer accuse the black man of not being able to endure criticism, although by accusing the black man, Brazilians were accusing themselves, so much so that beyond the black men who were sacrificial lambs, Barbosa, Juvenal, and Bigode, Brazilians cursed themselves as a subrace, a race of mestizos. Ali do Amparo had raised his hand to Obdulio Varela in the name of not just the blacks and mulattoes, but also the whites of Brazil. The whites had this satisfaction. Eli do Amparo was not alone in getting rough. The whites, mulattoes, and blacks of the Brazilian side were all equals in this. The parade of the Pan-American champions was from Galeão to the spruced-up city hall in a carnivalesque automobile procession, the cars crawling along. And on the margins of the boulevards and avenues, crowds were awaiting them. One could not walk on Rio Branco Avenue. Brazilian flags were on the balconies and on the flagpoles of buildings, and from the open windows blew the snowflakes of shredded papers. The curious thing was that the place of National Idol, previously occupied by Arthur Friedenreich and Leonidas da Silva, remained empty. Who had been the hero of Santiago? Castillo, Djalme Santos, Nilton Santos, Pinheiro, Eli do Amparo, the great captain, Julinho, Didi, Baltazar, Adamer. Many names were new. Why had they not discovered a Djalmo Santos before? Why had a Pinheiro not gotten a start? Why had Nilton Santos remained out? Why had an Eli do Amparo not been used? Why had Jolinho not drawn attention when they were lacking a right winger in 1950? Didi had really come up as a star player in 1951, and there was Zezinho who Many still considered the greatest Brazilian player, but he was in Bangu. He had lost the support of Flamengo's fans who went back to Rubens. And within Zeze Moraira's system, the key was a Didi and not a Zezinho. 
Aditi, who followed orders from one end to the other, never stopping on the field, threading balls from a distance. Without yet having the vanity of the Didi, who would become known as the Ethiopian prince from the ranch. The sports press swallowed the consecration of Zeze Morairo grudgingly. They did not go along with his system. What they wanted deep down was the Brazil of Brazil versus Spain, of the bullfights of Madrid, free on the field, uninhibited playing to the sound of a carnival march. Thus, perhaps, they were allowing the euphoria of the achievement in Santiago to die more quickly. Influencing this a little was the defeat of the Cariocas under Zeze Moraira by the Paulistas under Amore Moraira. With Julinho dancing around Milton Santos, for the sports columnists, this was the fault of Zeze Moraira, and his zonal defense, which had let Julinho get the ball in an open space and dominate it with his dribble. But the Paulista idol was Baltazar. All of Sao Paulo were glued to their radios, suffering what seemed an inevitable defeat in Porto Alegre to Rio Grande. The tie was approaching with the game ending when Baltazar rose up and headed the ball for the winning goal. Baltazar, the Flamengo of Sao Paulo, was from Corinthians. He soon came to be known as the Little Golden Head, Little Head, despite his big head covered with curly hair, and golden despite being a very dark mulatto. The conquest of the Pan American Championship would feature the last spark of the Vasco Squadron, the great team which had supplied 10 of the 20 players of the 1950 side returned to considering themselves the selection. It was a swan song. It had been forming starting 10 years before. From 1945 onward, one year, yes, the next, no, it was city champion. It had achieved in 1948 the title of South American club champion and in 1950, city champion for two consecutive years. Without a leader, it had fallen in 1951 after Flavio Costa had gone to Flamengo. Now, Vasco had Gentile Cardosa. After the mulatto, Otto Gloria the Black, Gentile Cordoso. The one who was bitter about the victories of Vasco was Flavio Costa. He considered himself a bit robbed. The squadron had been his for four years, and when he had to form a team, Gentil Corosa effortlessly took the squadron of Flavio Costa. Gentil Cordosa knew well that his victories would be of little use. The Cardinals of Vasco did not leave the house of Flavio Costa. Octavio Bovais was no longer president of Vasco, and Ciro Aranja wished to crown his term with the return of the professor. For this reason, every time someone referred to Flavio Costa, Gentil Cardosa would call him white boy. It was the white boy against the black boy. But Gentil Cardosa was going to show who the black boy was. The black boy was going to get a championship for Vasco, and afterward... 
That was what Gentile Cardoso wished to see. He had a two-year contract. How was Vasco going to break its contract with a champion coach? Perhaps Gentile Cardoso recalled Fluminense, which had sent him away after winning a championship for another white boy and a foreigner to boot, Ondino Vieira. Vasco, however, was different. They had some Sebastianists, but they also had some Gentilists, Vasco fans who, after a victory, applauded him. When Vasco became champion before the season ended, in a game in Sao Januario against Olaria, Gentil Cardosa did not hold back. He came onto the field and did a victory lap. It was for the Cardinals of Vasco, who were always behind Flavio Costa, to see whom the Vasco fans were with. A coach had never done this before. The coach always expected them to remember him as the commander, the general, to ask to carry him in triumph with him resisting a little, pretending he did not want it, that this was for the player. Gentile Cardoso removed his cap and did not stop waving it before the grandstands and the social areas of Sao Januario, while he carried on his strong legs his fat, almost round body, although made more of muscle than of paunch. And he received truly a consecration. The applause of the Vasco fans followed him around the field. Everyone knew that the return of Flavio Costa to Vasco was being plotted. But if Gentile Cardoso took Vasco to the conquest of the title, what did they need Flavio Costa for? Gentile Cardoso was a city councilman collecting votes for re-election. In the popular vote, he was re-elected. That was what was being asked, even by those who already knew that Flavio Costa had a verbal agreement with Vasco. There were those who said it was more than verbal, a signed contract, to begin on the day that his contract with Flamengo ended. How was Vasco going to get out of this? Triumphantly, Gentile Cardosa entered the changing room of Vasco. He was grinning broadly, rounding his long face, squinting his eyes more, which were almost hidden behind cheeks inflated like helium balloons. The consecration by the fans had gone to his head. The proof was that he said aloud, lifting his inseparable cap, crumpled in his hand, The masses are with me! For the nobility of Vasco, for the cardinals who already had the word of Flavio Costa, this was a pretext. Artur Fonseca Suarez, a great man of Vasco, did not hesitate to grab his glove and throw it in the face of Gentile Cardosa. Shut up! You are a simple employee of the club, sir. And he lifted his finger to the level of Gentile Cardoso's nose. He knew that Gentile Cardoso was hot-blooded, that he would not be able to stand a scolding in front of everyone. Gentile Cardoso reacted as Artur Fonseco Suarez had expected. To yelling, he responded with yelling, and to the finger to the nose with a finger to the nose. Then Artur String Fonseco Suarez declared that an employee of the club had insulted a great meritorious member, and he demanded then and there the dismissal of the employee. Gentile Cardoso was not fired immediately. 
They took him to one end of the changing room and took Arthur String Fonseco Suarez to the other. That was a moment of celebration. De Luca led the chair. Sack it! Sack the jacket! Vasco! 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 The celebrations of victory proceeded without Gentile Cardoso. When the management of Vasco met, it was to guarantee their solidarity with Archer String Fonseco Suarez. Gentile Cardoso had lifted his voice against a great, meritorious member, so he could not continue at Vasco. It was his pink slip. Vasco sought to be generous in its indemnification for the years remaining on the rescinded contract and in its award for the title. For Gentile Cardoso, that was yet another proof of racism. Between the black boy and the white boy, Vasco preferred the white boy. Why? Because he was white. It seemed as if a curse pursued him, that of being black. It was not that he renounced the color that God had given him. So much so that he called himself black boy. At no point did he stop feeling black. If he were white, he would not have been fired from Fluminense, or he would have stayed on at Flamengo. No white boy would bump him from Vasco. For players, it was different. If a player was black, he would rise up and not remain black, losing his color. However black he was, he would mix with the whites as if he were white. The phrase belonged to Robson, a black player from Fluminense. He was a little swallow of a man, a miniature of Carreiro, though he did not reach the level of soccer of Carreiro. He was able to have his way with the likes of Eli Do Amparo, the great captain, enormous and bow-legged, who felt himself disarmed before Robson by the mismatch in forces. Against Obdulio Varela, almost his size, Eli Do Amparo knew what to do. He would let his foot fly, and it was every man for himself what to do, however, against Robson, who seemed to him like a defenseless little ant. If he stepped on him, he would be crushed. Thus, the inhibition of Eli do Amparo when he saw appearing in front of him the minuscule Robson, and Robson would push the ball through his legs and would even jeer, soccer is a game for men. Robson played soccer and worked at the National Press. He also found time to run a tailor shop. He did not measure anyone. When the customer found it strange, Robson would explain, I take the measurements on first sight. One night, Benicio Ferreira Filio was taking Robson and Orlando, the drop of gold, to Fluminense in his Cadillac. Suarez Cabral Street, as usual, was badly lit. At the wheel, Benicio Ferreira Filio did not stop talking and laughing, satisfied with life. He was an agreeable companion because of the joy he radiated. At his side, everyone felt better. Life was worth living. And with two players of Fluminense at his side, in the front seat, Benicio Ferreira Filio felt all the happier. His carefree satisfaction might have been to blame or the poor lighting of Suarez Cabral Street, and it might have also been the color of the black couple in dark clothing who appeared as if from the earth or out of the night in front of the Cadillac.
The black man and woman leaning on each other were drunk, so much so that they were slowly zigzagging back and forth, as if Suarez Cabral Street belonged to them. Benicio Ferreira Filio saw the black couple just in time. He slammed his foot on the brake down to the floorboard. The Cadillac stopped with a screech, which is to say the tires of the Cadillac stuck to the cobblestones of Suarez Cabral Street. The body of the car went forward before bouncing back. Orlando was projected off the seat. He hit his head on the windshield of the Cadillac, and when he felt his forehead with his hand, there was a big lump on it. Then Orlando exploded. The least that he yelled at the black couple was, You dirty blacks! And so forth. The black man and woman who had stopped, still leaning on each other, paid no mind. Step by step, they reached the other sidewalk as if nothing had happened. Orlando got even more furious. The one who calmed him down was Robson. Don't do it, Orlando. I, too, was black, and I know what that's like. Robson was not even a player on the first team. He would be pulled up one game and go down the next. Zeze Moraira used him like a weapon. Above all since Flieta Solich had appeared with Baba, even smaller than Robson. Baba was very short but stocky with strong hairy legs. From a distance, however, he looked like a boy in short pants. When an opponent lifted his foot toward him, the crowd would howl with indignation and the referee would come over ranting. So Fluminense sent Robson on the field like a black Baba and Robson even abused Ellie Dompato. Soccer is a game for men. However, he was a weapon that could not always be used. If they couldn't tell on first sight, they would eventually. It was suddenly discovered that Baba was a real man. He could take a kick like any other. Even on the second team, Robson did not feel himself to be black. He knew only that he had been black, that he had been born black. How could he be black if he belonged to the Fluminense family? With a player, the one who liked the club wanted intimacy. If he could hug him, he would. Many whites, before achieving this intimacy, felt shy face-to-face -face with a black player. The positions would invert themselves, as if the black man could look down on the white from above. It was enough to break through the barrier for the white man to take pride in putting his arm around the black man's shoulder and being seen with him at the club headquarters in front of the other members who did not have the same pleasure or in the streets awaking the envy of passers-by. With a coach, it was different. The coach was always a bit distant, believing that the more distant he was from the fans, the better. Flavio Costa went so far as to demand that they train in secret. At least he made the practice secret. Practice time was a kind of state secret. Only the most intimate journalists were informed, thus the cold, empty grandstands. At other times, when the championship was heating up, the attendance of a practice was the same as at a big game. The coach preferred to work without the implacable supervision of the crowd, for the fan did not limit himself to watching. If he liked something, he would clap, and if he didn't, he would soon be putting two fingers in his lips to whistle in disapproval. 
and he would demand, yelling, the presence of a player who was on the bench. Flavio Costa had given a master class. Those who wished to be coaches wanted to be like him, demanding and countermanding. An era was ending, although the coaches were the last ones to know. This explains, perhaps, the greater offense taken by Gentile Cardoso. For him, nothing had changed. Simply put, he was black and Flavio Costa was white. But Flamengo was going to hand over, although for a short time, the team to Jaime de Almeida while they waited Fleta Solich. Otto Gloria was at America, and the one who commanded the youth team of Fluminense was Gradom. The black coach was welcomed at a big club, and if those who were for Flamengo wished for Fleta Solich to come as quickly as possible, it was not because of the color of Jaime de Almeida. If Fleta Solich did not work out, there was nothing easier than sending him away, but they could not even think about sending away Jaime de Almeida. What the fans of Flamengo were doing, praying for the rapid arrival of Fleta Solich, was defending Jaime de Almeida. As a player without kicking anyone, Jaime de Almeida had gotten on the Brazilian side. He would have gone further if he was not so clean. Was Jaime de Almeida too good to be a coach? A coach had to use trickery, and even if he didn't have to be a rogue in the sense of trickiness and street smarts, he had to be a tough boss. He had to yell, and Jaime de Almeida was incapable of yelling. It was the desire that Jaime de Almeida always remain with Flamengo, which made the red and black fans fearful of the tremendous trial being imposed on the good black man. The fans perceived that the times were changing. May they change without touching Jaime de Almeida. Gentil Cardoso, however, was resentful. He left Vasco to join Botafogo, and the one who was president of Botafogo was Paulo Azeredo, who, in a general Severiano, had been the last to agree to a black man wearing the white and black jersey. Vasco had never had such things, quite the contrary, but maybe for that reason Gentile Cardoso did not forget. Who knows if he too, like Flavio Costa, was deluding himself regarding the squadron in its final days. Botafogo had not been champion since 1948. In General Severiano, Gentile Cardoso was going to feel a bit like Flavio Costa at Flamengo having to form a team. He was going to have the glory of discovering Garincha, who had been moving from club to club. At Fluminense, they didn't even let him change into his soccer clothes. At Sao Cristobal, he saw practice end without being called onto the field. It is true that the same had occurred at Vasco, the white boy in place of the black boy. At every practice, unknown players would show up, a member had seen them play. It was the new Zizinho, the new Adamir, the new Didi. The coach would send one in and not even let him warm his body up. Then it was the next one's turn. And depending, it depended on recommendation. Sometimes a player would bring a good reference. Garincha was on the fence, waiting. The afternoon was deepening 
and soon the practice would end. Suddenly, Gentile Cardoso sees him and calls to him, You there, go in. Garincha went in. His luck was that the back, who was going to defend him, was called Nilton Santos. Garincha got the ball and stopped in front of Nilton Santos with his crooked legs. He faint that he was going, didn't go, then went. Those who were at General Severiano Stadium saw something they had never expected. A rookie with crooked legs knocking down Nilton Santos with a dribble. Nilton Santos was on the ground, his legs in the air. Gentil Cardoso had no doubts. He stuck with Garincha right away. He was a player who had come from Raiz da Serra, who had played only in informal games, who had one leg eight centimeters longer than the other, and who only kept himself on his feet and walked and ran with the ball because, beforehand, he would bend his longer leg like a bow until it was positioned at the height of his shorter one. A player like that came along only once in a great while, by a miracle. In the end, he would not serve much use to Gentile Cardoso. Garincha would do a dribble and the crowd would crack up laughing because the defender would fall on his behind. But Garincha continued to dribble. He liked to have the ball at his feet, to run with it. He did not want to let it go. After a dribble, he waited for the opponent to get up to do another, as a bonus. He was the joy of the match. There were those who asked, so what? Brazil would have the bitter experience of a South American championship and another World Cup. The South American championship was in Lima. It should have been in Asuncion, but Paraguay did not have the money to pay for travel and lodging costs of so many delegations. Only Argentina showed up. Thus, there was no doubt Brazil was going to be champion. There would never be an easier South American championship for Brazil. And despite this, or because of it, Brazil lost. The coach was Aimore Moreira. Aggravated by Crest's criticism, Zeze had excused himself his brother had been the coach of Sao Paulo Brazilian champions of 1952, thus the choice of the CBD. In the beginning, it seemed as if there was no force that could hold back the Brazilian side. Suddenly, everything started to go awry. There was a division in the side between Cariocas and Paulistas. The Paulista columnists were pulling for the Paulistas, and the Carioca columnist for the Cariocas. Zizinho assumed command of the Cariocas. Aymaré Moraira, the coach of Sao Paulo, tried to get support from the Paulistas. When after two defeats, Brazil was about to play its decisive match for the title-breaker, a tiebreaker with Paraguay, Rivadavia Coraira Mayer, president of the CBD, decided to give the direction of the team to Flavio Costa and Zeze Moraira, as well, without removing Amore Moraira. Amore Moraira set up a barricade at the Brazilian team's quarters. The one who watched the door was Mario Viana, 
you'll only come in here over my dead body. Jose Lins de Rogo stood by the side of Amore Moraida. Zeze Moraida came to Lima to say that the side belonged to Aimore, and Aimore led the side in the loss to Paraguay. The CPD resolved to do two things, to never again hire Amore Moraida as a national coach and to never put Zizinho on the side again. Jose Linz Dorego's report was decisive. Zizinho had divided the side by forming a group. With Zeno on a team, no coach could have tranquility. Then arrived the time for Zeze Moraida's fall in the World Cup of 1954 in Switzerland. For the European journalists, there were two favorites, Brazil and Hungary. For years, Hungary had been building a team with 1954 in mind. They had already given a show of force by demolishing England at Wembley Stadium. But the European press still remembered the Brazilian versus Spain game of 1950 in the Maracanã. If Brazil were the same, perhaps not even the marvelous Hungarian side could resist. The Brazilians, however, had not forgotten July 16, 1950. The proof is that Bauer signed a contract with Sao Paulo before embarking, one that he had been consistently rejecting. At the time of departure, he did not hesitate a moment more. And if Brazil were to lose? If Brazil lost, Bauer pictured himself disembarking in Balem do Pará and traveling incognito to Sao Paulo. Zeze Moraira made the mistake of taking the Brazilian players to a practice of the Hungarians, whom everyone called the ghosts of the World Cup. And what the Brazilian players saw took them back to July 16, 1950. By the eighth minute of the match, Hungary had scored two goals. The first was at four minutes and Castillo was hugging the post, hiding his face as if he were going to cry. A little later, at eight minutes, Pinheiro, when he had an easy ball to clear, got shaky legs. That was the second Hungarian goal. Meanwhile... On the field, wet from rain, Didi was sliding around as if on skates. It was his short cleats which did not allow him to get a secure footing. Only in the second half did Didi change cleats in order to thread his balls. Even so, the first half ended two to one. When they were thinking Brazil would tie, Mr. Ellis awarded a penalty against Brazil. This was the third Hungarian goal. Brazil still scored one more goal. They could have even tied, but they lost Milton Santos when, receiving a kick from Bosiak, he raised his hand to him. Bosiak retaliated. Mr. Ellis sent both of them off. The Hungarians scored their fourth goal, and Humberto, desperate, kicked Kosas from behind. This had been another error of Zizi Moraida. He had assigned Humberto to the side and had had to remove him more than once in response to boos. Humberto knew how to make his entrance at the right time. He would stay alone in front of the goal and boot the ball out of play. He would get booed, then again boot the ball out. In Switzerland, Zeze Moraida did not have the Maracana to boo Humberto. He carefully chose the game in which to start him, 
precisely the one against Hungary. Clearly, Humberto still heard, in Zurich, the boots of the Maracana. Now that everyone was lost, it was necessary to show that at least he was a man. On the bench, Eli do Amparo lamented only one thing, not being on the field to be the Brazilian Obdulio Varela. For Mario Viana, the blame lay with Mr. Ellis, the referee. He called Mr. Ellis a thief and ended up getting kicked out of the group of international referees. Zeze Moraira did more. He chewed out Sebis, the vice minister of sports of Hungary. When the game was over, he grabbed a cleat shoe, and when Sebes appeared in front of him, he hit him in the face with the sole of the shoe. The one, however, who awoke the most interest in the international press was a Brazilian journalist, Paulo Planet Barquet, who did a leg sweep on a Swiss gendarme. It was a perfect leg sweep. The Swiss gendarme fell down flat. He got up right away and made a gesture. While Paulo Planet Barquet expected the Swiss gendarme to pull out his revolver to shoot him, what he did pull out was a handkerchief to clean his uniform. Paris Mashed published a full-page photograph showing Paulo Planet Barquet leg-sweeping the Swiss gendarme and the gendarme entirely off-balance on his way to the ground. Context of white supremacy. I was trying to see if I could find the picture of this leg sweep uh, from the 1954 World Cup, but I failed thus far. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy, 420. If you have commentary, the number to dial is 605-313-5164. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate again we're almost done with this book so concluding thoughts if you've been listening in live or to the archives and you have final thoughts you want to get in thanks for our narrator whatever what you've learned about brazil right so many people said they wanted to study that area next week all done so getting our concluding thoughts in about Negroes with kinky hair in Brazilian soccer the email untiljustice at gmail.com untiljustice at gmail.com one of our investors wrote in says during the 1960s one of the most popular musical groups Particularly among white people in the U.S. was Sergio Mendez and Brazil 66. Sergio Mendez is a Brazilian national who formed the group. The lead singers were two non-Brazilian U.S. white women. They were ubiquitous on U.S. TV and radio, but were virtually unknown in Brazil. I first learned of the great Pele coming up shortly during the 1970s when he was hired by the New York Cosmos in 1975. His debut match was viewed by 10 million people on CBS television. Unfortunately, this was during the tail end of his career. However, 
he made more in the two years he played with the Cosmos than the entire rest of his career, which would include three World Cup championships that they're whining and crying about losing right now. I vaguely recall thinking, that's interesting. They have dark Brazilians who look as if they could be my cousin. My confusion. Lots of them. In fact, I think that's most of the country in Brazil. Dark people that you never see. Chapter 6. Number 1. Page 283. Instead of Bigode, old Alfredo the second, black and without a single tooth in his mouth since he left his dentures in the changing room. Poor dental health should never be minimized. It can lead to increased rates of heart disease and can affect one's ability for employment. For example, poor dentin dentition can prevent one from being hired for jobs which require interactions with customers. Maybe that's why dental health is not included in any significant degree in U.S. governmental health plans. Could be. Number two, page 284. What a shock for the Brazilians then when the telegrams from London proclaimed the British wonder regarding America's soccer, the best team that the players of Arsenal had ever seen. Arsenal, founded in 1886, founded by munitions workers, currently worth $2.68 billion, simply astounding what gains value in the global system of racism, white supremacy. I said, I don't know anything about football anywhere in the world, right? Even the Seattle professional soccer team. Uh, but just casual looking, most of these teams that they're talking about, are still in existence. They're still playing, rolling, kinky-haired people, you know, on the team doing whatever. So I am sure that's the case for many of them, that they went from these humble beginnings and all the rest of it to billion-dollar enterprises, well-sponsored, too. Kachaka all around. Number three, page 285. Contrary to Bangu, Fluminens had whitened their team. They had only two mulattoes, Penhero and Edson, one of whom has a curve in his spine and played like a human tower of Pisa on the verge of falling. One black player, Didi, so black that he earned the nickname Red or Downtrodden Blood Dark. Carlisle, white missing an ear or part of an ear, which caused him to pose only in profile on the side of the complete ear, ended up with Cowlick. Zeze Carlisle, white and missing an ear or part of an ear which caused him to pose on another. The author emphasizes the congenital and acquired ailments of the black players, scoliosis, big feet, big head, missing an ear, all in the name of denigration of the black male. I think Carlisle may be one of the few whites that he has described their physical defects. It's always so black, too black, as if it was a physical defect, never white white or super white that is true never extreme like oh ghastly white Ooh. page 4 285 to or number 4 285 to 286 beautiful horses thus 1951 had debuted another great black man of brazilian soccer dd he played with his feet except when he apparently lost his balance to thread a pass zeze morera pointed out that black man with the long neck like seals balancing head like the greatest striker Brazil greater than Zinzenho see opinion the ugly history of comparing black athletes and animals 
Washington Post, December 15, Stasia A. Brown. Long history, horses, all of that. They say that like to this day, horses and all the rest of it, talking about black athletes. Number five, page 287, in front of the crowd in the biggest stadium in the world, a masseuse and a very black, see, there it is again, a very black one at that, raising his hand to a very white face at a club president who is always in charge. The white face, that's such a striking passage. I have to go back to my notes on that. Number six, page 288. Brazil won everything in soccer and kicks and shoves and slaps. The spirit of the great captain had possessed El Du Amparo. He was a black man who made a point of demonstrating that black men did not flee from the front, exaggerating a little to avenge Barbosa and Bigode to end that story that it was black players who had brought about the loss on July 16, 1950, or black Brazilians since the Uruguay implying that black Brazilian soccer players were cowards, did not flee from the front question. They persevered and played remarkably under the most onerous conditions. And I'd say that's been the entire book, right? You're playing where you could be lynched and they're talking in that manner, right? All the rest of it, yelling at you and beating you and all the rest of it. Like, geez, I think it's nothing to demonstrate. And even once you do all that, guess what? You're still a negra with kinky hair. Number seven, page 289. It was a victory that unburdened all of Brazil. That's the reception of the heroes of the Pan-American Championship of the True World Champions. No longer accuse the black man of not being able to endure criticism. Although by accusing the black man, Brazilians were accusing themselves, black men who were sacrificial lambs, animals again, cursed themselves as a sub-race, the whites mulattoes and blacks of the Brazilian side were all equals in this apparently the black players redeemed themselves by winning the Pan American Championship so we are equals now my research suggests that Philo played a role in developing an alternative championship after the devastating 1950 loss in the World Cup instead of a World Cup with one national team he was involved in developing a club championship with international individual teams. It seems he left his involvement with this. Bitter about the ball games. Number eight, page 291, Baltazar the Flamingo of Sao Paulo was from Corinthians. He soon became to be known as the little golden head. The little head, despite his big head, covered with curly hair and golden, despite being a very dark mulatto once again and it's always a bad thing see even that in the previous sentence when he was talking about the president him being very white wasn't a bad thing it was almost as though his being white and the whiteness of it added to the insult like oh my god this negro with curly hair is gonna strike a really really white person like oh can you believe it what are we gonna do kill him here it's being very dark uh not just mulatto with kinky hair, like really. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, let's see. Thinkification, dehumanization, effeminization of the black male throughout this text, for sure. For Gentile Cardosa, that was yet another proof of racism between the black boy and the white boy. Vasco preferred the white boy. 
Why? Because he was white. For players, it was different. If a player was black, he would rise up and not remain black. Right? Losing his color. Right? However black he was. See, it is going to even if he was really black, super black, crystal black, even then. <laughs> Get out of here. However black he was, he would mix with the whites as if he were white, enormous, and bow-legged who felt himself disarmed before Robson by the mismatch in forces, defenseless little ant. The, this book, amazingly contradictory, no racism, racism, no racism, no wonder there is so much confusion in Brazil, absolutely confusion all the way through. Even though I think the first part of this, where it's, hey, why do you prefer the white boy? Because he's white. Yep, that's about the size of it. That's what this is all around the world and irrespective of time period. All I can say, all of that, the black players mixed in. We've read about 90% of this book at this point, so we can make some generalizations about what we've heard. Man, how many players have we heard? They didn't go mix in with the white players. They did exactly what we talk about on neutralizing workplace racism every Friday. <laughs> I don't kick it with these white players. They're out getting drunk and going to the shindig and all the rest. Man, I'm good. Back some of them, I don't even change my clothes with them. What do you mean mix? I wait till they're done in the shower. I run in, change my clothes quick, and I'm out of here. They go get drunk. I go sleep at the club, get my little pillow and everything, and I'm out. I don't even do that. We've heard that over and over and over. Not, oh, yeah, we just all kick it. This is no color. This is Brazil. Stop lying. Let's see. Last one, page or number 10, page 294. Might have also been the color of the black people in dark clothing who appeared in front of the Cadillac. Black men and women leaning on each other were drunk. The Cadillac stopped with a screech. Orlando was projected off the seat. He hit his head on the windshield of the Cadillac. Then Orlando exploded the least, the least, look at that, the least. So we don't even know how much he called him. The least that he yelled at the black couple was, you dirty blacks. Dirty is in the word guide. And last week, remember he said, the greatest dirtbag. He's talking about the black player. said it twice. What a dirtbag. It's really black hours. I mean, real black. What a dirt bag dirt and black it's all and remember last week the clean that's what he said about the english the white people in london they clean while the black soccer players are dirt bags dirty blacks they can't even dirty yeah 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 negroes are kicky here okay number again 605 313 Five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Let's see. Our caller two two six two. You have commentary on the first portion of the reading. Two two six two should be with us. Greetings. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call and greetings to everyone online and greetings to all the listeners. Um, yes, and also uh, I want to say uh, definitely appreciate the um, narrator uh, taking time out to um, bring voice to this very, um, very interesting and, and thought-provoking uh, literature. Um, my first commentary was on page 284 
and uh, they were referring to a player that had his hair, I guess, messed up. Because they use the term cowlick. Uh, well, when I think of a cowlick, I think of something that has been uh, pressed and straight and, I guess, steep. That's one of the terms used in this book. Um, and I believe this person will probably be a non-white person. And the reason why he reacted uh, that way is because, I guess, now you're revealing, hey, um, <laughs> I could probably be classified as black now or uh, something to that. It's like I'm not a mestizo or mulatto or something to that. That's what I was thinking why he, uh, he got so infuriated by that. And uh, I think you already brought it up on page 285. I thought that was interesting. Um, the wording where it said red downtrodden blood. Um, so I guess blood that has color or, or if it's not white blood, it's um, a low rate inferior type blood. That's what I was thinking from that uh, section. Um, on page uh, 285, uh, 286, uh, he made a lot of references to the players and used, uh, I guess, a lot of animals. One was a... Uh, uh, when he talked about them being beautiful as horses, and the other one had a neck like long one they could seal, you know that's you know uh, that's interesting. Um, I also noted on page two eighty six that um, the president of the Portuguesa, uh, the Sporting Portuguesa, how when they had their little uh, flafu or their, their fights or whatever, he ran down to the field and was was about to engage in a fight. This is a the, the sporting president. I mean, they're just acting like barbarians. That's what I noted there. Um, on 288, um, they're talking about... Give me one moment. Yeah. Uh, Brazil was salivating uh, at this delectable feast on the radio. It was a matter of title... Uh, that a little that all of it was no particular use. Well, this is about, I guess, getting the revenge from the uh, the uh, July defeat from, I guess, some years back. Uh, just throw down, you know, vengeful. I mean, never letting anything go and always trying to get um, to get some payback. Metaphor, I guess, well, getting some uh, revenge. That's what I was thinking. Um, Two eighty nine. Uh, they brought up the term, well, the phrase, uh, the bullfights of Madrid. I was thinking, again, uh, Dr. Wilson talks about those um, a lot. Um, I also want to point out that when, um, I guess his name was Gentil Cardoso, um, when he was just feeling, uh, I guess, uh, proud of him, well, proud, that's one thing, uh, in, invigorated by the crowd and the cheering and whatnot, you have this other person just ready to uh, tear him down and and tell him, "Hey, you're just a, a you know part of the club. You know, shut up." I mean, it's, it's to let him have something. No, I just it was, and then he had to end up getting fired for it because it tacky. You know, I guess that's qualified as terroristic. I guess getting fired. But that's so far, that's my commentary, and thank you for taking my call. Much obliged, thought-provoking. Great way to 
think about this book in my view thought-provoking I think some of the other folks who wrote in um, and I agree with their assessment where they said this is not going to be on my top 10 this is not one of my uh, favorite books this is not going to you know challenge the delectable Negro for a spot on the top 10 but thought-provoking and has provided an opportunity for myself and maybe even others to learn quite a bit about Brazil global system of white supremacy how the local national system of white supremacy racism operates in this part of the world at least what it looked like in the 20th century and then trying to weave in some of the reports about things that are happening there right now I'll get to some of my notes star six one other folks have thoughts again concluding thoughts big pictures as we kind of wrap things up here certainly the homoeroticism and kinky hairness all that uh, let's see the showing that you are a man this is a man's gang there's so much of that throughout uh, white sport uh, throughout the 20th you hear that with boxing oh my goodness the Boston Tar Baby Sam Lankford but you hear so much of that like before we get to this era where uh, the pretty boy Floyd Mayweather uh, who is it Deontay Wilder and Mike Tyson and all these other guys black guys before this era uh, uh, Geronte Davis isn't he fighting this weekend there we go we should get in current uh but before that era, it was all white guys doing the boxing worldwide. We just read about Bill Russell. It was all white guys. It was uh, Jerry West and John Havlicek, all the rest of them. George Mikan. It was all white guys doing the basketball. Before This book was published in 1947. Jackie Robinson, he wasn't the first but they didn't allow Negroes to play for a long time. It was all white guys. You got to be a man to play baseball. You got to be a man to be a boxing champion. You got to be a man to play football. Either way, soccer or tackle, but you got to be a man, a white man to do this. That's what they said. You hear that said, and I mean explicitly. I said, Sam Lankford, the Boston Tar Baby, is coming. They said the same thing. Hitler said the same thing. You can't have Jesse Owens run at the Olympics. He's not a man. That's not even in the rules. He's a horse. Heard that one already. Like having a darn horse out there. On the track. You don't put a horse at the Olympics. Come on. Let's see. Two, 285. One again. So Romello's so black. We I haven't heard any where we can't just say that and the same thing with the white people they are sophisticated it's not even that they're white we'll hear that German English Venezuelan you know what a Italian it'll be specific you know Negras is just Negras you know none of that I've said that before Negras is just Negras not where you're born at Negras is Negras and then it's you know, the best you can hope for is that you're mestizo. You know, you got raped by, you got a white parent that raped you. You know, raped one of your other parents or something. That's the best you can hope for, that you can be mulatto. You're not too dark. That's the best you can hope for. You don't want to be 
double whammy nigra. You got two nigra pants. Like, oh my god, Ooh. for real black, extreme black, so black. How black? Oh my god, so black that he earned the nickname Red of Down. <laughs> like what? And the names that they get, like, what are you talking about? I'm so black. You gotta call me Red. Remember they had the other fella that was black. They said, mask yourself, mask yourself. I forgot what it was in in Portuguese, but that was in the footnote. That, that, that they turned uh, Gratum. They turned his name into an insult. He plays like a Gratum. He looks like a Gratum. That's my name, man. What do you mean? He's so black. We called him Red, the downtrodden, blood dark. I call it just said that it's not white, like not even like ugh, nigger, ugh, 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 ugh. repulsive. Just <laughs> with Sam the Boston Tar Baby Lankford, Deontay Wild. I just mentioned him. What the, was his name? Same as Joe Lewis, the Brown Bomber. That's how much progress we've made. Red, like Detroit Red, all the way to Brown Bomber. We get used that. We don't even come up with new nicknames anymore. We ran out of nicknames. He's black. How black is he? Ooh, real black. Brown Bomber. We used that before. That's all right. They don't even remember. And we don't. Let's see. Soccer is a game for men. They got that at the bottom of the page. Oh, and again, it's again. It's at the bottom of 285. Soccer is a game for men. And it was a game for men. And we lost the world championship. We were not men. The conclusion the Brazilians had reached. That was back the game that they lost. And their lack of manhood is racial. Because we got so much. We've done so much raping. We got too much of this dark, red, downtrodden nigger blood. We're not even real men anymore. We can't even play soccer correct. Like, what? All of that to me. White genetic annihilation. We are thirsting and raping black people all the time. And then have the audacity. Oh, oh, we got too much had too much fun raping the negros now look at that we can't even play soccer right like are you serious yes let's see bottom of 286 even this when they're uh talking about the i guess the rematch the pan-american championship game between brazil and uruguay uh, he bet on a race that he himself ran his knees pumping up and down like pistons of a motor pistons of a motor at full speed and he was all smiles joyful happy he would get down next to the fallen player pump out the bag filled with pieces of ice and never stop talking this is what explains the nickname messenger pigeon uh and this is talking about the black player uh and i guess he's the masseuse for the now even something you can think about that that's your job you're the masseuse for the team Mario Americo uh, and even let me back up and give the paragraph before uh, they say not just the players also the coaches the masseuses as in the case of Mario Americo the Vasco masseuse who had become a popular figure as the messenger pigeon now even we said animals there you go again right messenger pigeon I was even thinking Jim Crow pigeon Jim 
when Mario Americo came out onto the field running as if he were betting on a race, his bald black head shining in the sun, <laughs> like for reals, I feel like I've seen that before, like some sort of ridicule character of the, the bald headed, shining, shiny black bald headed male. Yeah, dude. Uh, he says, floodlights it was not just to help a fallen player especially because the coach needing to give instructions would make a gesture and thus injure a player on his team without being touched the player would fall so they got all their gamesmanship down uh and then i already read the portion but all of this the happy joyful negra masseuse uh doing the massages and so you have a male masseuse who's coming out to massage these other male players even that the, the homoeroticism Let's see, 287. Oh, he smacks. This is the one where he smacks the president who runs down on the field. I think our caller pointed that out in terms of having a president. I mean, if you NBA playoffs, Adam Silver, right? Can you imagine him running out on the, wait, Draymond Green, behave yourself. I pop you. Can you imagine playing <laughs> people who watch the NFL? Can you imagine can you imagine uh, Roger Goodell, tackle football I'm talking about, uh, running out on the field? You know, want to get Antonio Brown? Put your shirt back on. Behave yourself. Calm you. What's wrong with you? Pow. Smack him upside. Behave yourself. Can you imagine? <laughs> like, what in the world? Uncouth. We've heard so much of that. They're ready to brawl and fight and riot. And, and then you look at the schools in Brazil right now. You look at the rioting at the beginning of the year. President, at former president, got to go testify about all that. Uh, but even this, to me, when they say, so he, uh, this black, shiny, black, bald head male, the messenger pigeon, he smacks the president of this very white face and says, contrary to what was expected, the president of the sporting Portuguesa was dazzled. What a term. It was a man like that, that he needed a man and he would not rest until he could bring Mario Americo to Sao Paulo. He hires him. Even that. Something about that, because I mean, they do have they call it S&M sadomasochism like that is a whole lot of literature on that. Why do white people like to have black leather and then pay someone to lash and whip them, beat them, smack them in the face sometimes? Why why is that? Hmm. Hmm. Anywho, let's see. Bigode perhaps had been called up so there'd be no doubt that he was a man. All of this talk about, you know, you got to prove and smack somebody or do whatever. You can't be weak. You got to show that you're a man. That is rife throughout white culture, white manhood. Got to pump up white manhood, white manhood, white men. Even that should be thought about. You're in a system of white supremacy racism. You don't even have any competition. All these black males that we're hearing about are illiterate, bald head, toothless, all the rest street urchins like What's the problem? Why is your manhood insecure even under these circumstances? Hmm. Oh my God, it just continues. It was a fury of vengeance, Brazilian style, which was not placated even with the blowout. Bigode had gotten the best of Udilio Varela 
he could hold his head high again. Ellie D'Amparo was parading around the field, his long legs bent, his chest puffed out like a fighting cock after it makes the other rooster sing like a hen. What it, what, what in the Mike Vick? What in the Chicken George? What? The homo... What? <laughs> Just the homo erotic. I'm dominating another male. This is a cock dominant. What? What? And with all of the... Because all of this, the homo eroticism the author, Philo, has called attention to this himself in this book, talking about the vulgarity of talking about balls, right? He did that at the very beginning of the book, so I mean, uh, let's see. Black people don't blush, generally speaking. I just think that's something generally you're going to be talking about people who uh, are melanin deficient, who are going to be blushing and shameful about something. The defeat uh, they carry this the shame and guilt and blush from this loss even still the importance of white ball games uh, let's see oh and again so their loss it says so much so that beyond the black men who were sacrificial lambs Barbosa juvenile bigode Brazilians cursed themselves as a sub race a race of mestizos like I said it's it's racial it's that we have not done enough to keep the white race in this area pure. We've done too much fooling around with these negras and, you know, we've somehow been tainted. Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> that, what does it mean to be white? This is how they think. How about you stop raping us? Nah, nah. Gotta do that. Gotta, gotta get that old... The, the messenger pigeon got to have him over here touching and rubbing on me. Yes. Might even get him to smack me a few times. Pay him extra. Let's see. All the references to the bullfights. I think we had talked about that before. For me, that just reinforces so much of this is around white genetic annihilation. Uh, the fear of the, that's why the darker the black male, the more of a threat they are. They have to be dehumanized. They have to, because they're not people. They have to be horses and seals and anything but a man. Keep them illiterate, no dental plan, street urchins, stuff them back, you know, in the foot, all of that. That's why. Dr. Welsing, exactly what she talked about. And I said that when they had that scene that was so graphic, talking about the enjoyment of taking the knife and slicing up the black ball. I said, that's like castration. That's what they do to the bull. Bam, right here in the book. And it gets mentioned multiple times. The running of the bulls were, like I said, they castrate the bull. Dr. Welsing talks about that, has a whole chapter about that and a whole chapter about the symbolism of white ball games and it all goes back to the same thing white genetic annihilation why they pay so much attention to the see we got a mulatto you have kinky what kind of hair is it kinky why are they paying attention to all of this white genetic annihilation the what is it Baltazar the flamingo of Sao Paulo from the Corinthians he soon came to be known as the little golden head little head even that little head despite his big head covered with curly hair 
and golden despite being a very dark mulatto. Once again, it's never a good thing. Always, oh, oh, God, he's mulatto, but even still, he's, you know, extra. And he's got the kinky hair. Let's see. Even this scene where they talk about Gentile Cardoso, the black boy, where he gets fired. This sort of thing happens right now. They say where the president, he comes down and tells him to shut up. You're a simple employee of this club, sir. And he lifted his finger to the level of Gentile Cardoso's nose. He knew that Gentile Cardoso was hot blooded, whatever that means, that he would not be able to stand a scolding in front of everyone. We talk about that practically every week on neutralizing workplace racism where white people on the job they love see he said you're an employee you don't talk who do you think you are you shut up get over there they talk to us like this right now on the job I talk, said that exactly last week they love to do this sort of thing I'm going to come out and humiliate and embarrass and yell at this coon Ooh, and they will do things to get us to chimp out and then they'll say oh got him you're fired you don't talk to me that way. You can't talk to another white man like that. Boys, let's write him up. And that's, they do that exact thing in 2023. This this event happened post-World War II, sometime after 1950. They, the code hasn't changed at all. And you can move north of the equator, exact same thing. I'm going to come yell at They're hot-blooded. They're emotional. They don't do anything. You can get them riled up, get them to chimp out real easy. Just call them nigra. Once or twice, or you know, in sport their salts with sports team or whatever, you know, say something about Obama and they go, what what you say about my former president? That gotcha. That's why we talk about that all the time. Yeah, be cool, take a breath. Maybe take a step back so they don't have it to serve. You can please refrain from placing your hand in my face. Thank you. Take space. Don't feel safe. Talk about that. <laughs> I don't feel safe. You're invading my space. I don't feel safe. Uh, let's see. Proof of race. I mean, I find that astounding because you do not hear things stated that explicitly for the most part now. And for a black person to say this is proof of racism in a book that was first published in 1947. Wow. Not Jim Crow. Not discrimination or, you know, whatever other goofy segregation, (laughs) racism. Wow. So blunt, accurate. That's, you know, hard to come by even today, 2023. Uh, The black boy and the white boy, the white man. But we got it. We got it. And even the reason because he's white. That's that's what it is. It's nothing wrong with you. It's not that the white person is more qualified. It's because they're practicing white supremacy racism. And I love that he didn't say it's because I'm black. No, 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 no. It's because they are white racist. Doesn't have anything to do with me at all. Doesn't even say that that white person is more qualified. Frequently, that isn't the case either. All this nepotism, cronyism. Let's see. The, fra- the phrase belonged to Robson, a black player from Fluminense. He was a little swallow of a man, a miniature of Cairo- Carrero. Though he did not reach the level of soccer of Carrero, he was able to have his way with the likes of Eli 
de Amparo, the great captain, enormous and bow-legged, who felt himself disarmed before Robson by the mismatch in forces. Even that, disarmed. Welsing moment again. You've taken my weapon away because, and we've talked about how frequently he is talking about black players as weapons, switchblades and such, in the book that this black player has disarmed this white player just by coming out on the field. That's, wow, stunning. Uh, Welsing is, Welsing moment. Let's see, the black man and woman passage that we talked about with the dirty blacks, which we've heard throughout the dirtbag Negroes. They say the same thing right now. Uh, let's see. Talked about the uh, Robson not feeling himself to be black. Lots of evidence in this text would suggest otherwise. Uh, let's see. Thing. Oh, 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 wait a minute. I thought that was. Wait a minute. So they're uh, doing the. This is before the World Cup, I think. I want to make sure I get my tournaments correct. Oh, this is the 1954 World Cup where they uh, face Hungary at the World Cup, 1954. So at this one, they lose in the championship game again. They're all upset and everything. Uh, they say. Meanwhile, on the field, wet from rain, Didi was sliding around as if on skates. It was his short cleats which did not allow him to get secure footing. Only in the second half did Didi change cleats in order to thread his balls. That was another one. I was kind of like, hmm. I don't know if all. Well, the homoeroticism is in the Portuguese version because it's written in the text. So it has to be. And then a lot of it is the shindigs, the guys dancing with other guys, white guys and all that. Uh, let's see. So the Hungarian team wins. In Switzerland, Zeze Moreira did not have the Maracana to boo Humberto. He carefully chose the game in which to start him, precisely the one against Hungary. Clearly, Humberto still heard in Zurich the boos of the Maracana. Now that everything was lost, it was necessary to show that at least he was a man. That theme again. Uh, so they go with all this unsportsmanship, and I'm going to go kick somebody. Uh, Zeze Moreira did more. He chewed out Sebez, the vice minister of sports of Hungary. Chewed out, delectable. When the game was over, he grabbed a cleated shoe, and when Sebez appeared in front of him, he hit him in the face with the sole of the shoe. I'm hoping they got pictures of that, too. Uh, the one, however, who awoke the most interest in the international press was a Brazilian journalist, Paulo Planet Barut Bark who did a leg sweep on a Swiss gendarme. It was a perfect leg sweep. The Swiss gendarme fell down flat. He got up and made a gesture. Now, I don't know if that's like he gives him the middle finger or some other sort of crude sign or what have you, but are you serious? At the World That's like the Olympic. The World Cup is, is a huge deal. That's like the Olympic soccer is the number one sport in the world. You get mad because you lose and you go do a leg suit. That's assault. Like, aren't you supposed to go to jail for that international incident and all this? Like, what? I thought all this was supposed to be about sportsmanship, right? That's what they say. Like, hey, 
global game. We all learn. It's a big planet. We get some exercise. That's what they say, right? Get some exercise. It's a big planet. We all have our love of soccer. We learn different styles and ways of playing. Forget all of that. I'm ready to go curse somebody out. We're about to lose. Let me get out on the field. I'm going to go kick three or four people before I get thrown out of here. We lost. Let me go kick the journalist. Blame some niggers. They still do all that today. I don't know about the leg sweep part, but I mean, are you serious? Well, they do have to clear the stadiums out. You find all kinds, all kinds of corruption and thuggery in FIFA and professional soccer. I mean, that is oh, psh, nothing sacred, folks. The Olympics, NBA, NFL, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Catholic Church, nothing sacred in the system of white supremacy racism but I mean that is so disgraceful I'm hoping I can get the uh, picture and when, uh, I thought we, 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 we had all that last week about dirt bags we got these nigger dirt bags with the kinky hair messing up our game we got to make sure that we're like our clean white English fathers of the game remember all that what happened to that hypocrisy in the system of white supremacy racism it is so can you imagine if it was a bunch of black players they go at at an international competition go out at the Olympics mad lost the you know gold medal at the basketball or whatever we're supposed to win favored to win we go out here gymnastics team Imagine Gabrielle Douglas. Ooh, ooh, I'm so mad. Ooh, I'm gonna go get the the chalk. You know the resin that they use so they don't slip on the bar. Go get the chalk and yeah, throw it. At, can you imagine? Anywho, uh, so we're at six point four. I think Pele should be coming to us. I don't want to look too far ahead, but I mean Pele should be coming to us in the next few paragraphs or so he's gonna I know he's gonna dominate next week of the book but he should the beginnings of the young Pele who sets everything right and gets Brazil three World Cup victories all we've heard about is the painful L's so far but this young for sure kinky haired Negro extra black crystal black ooh black <laughs> I don't know we'll see we'll see how they describe the kinky haired Pele uh, we'll look for that this week. If you have other thoughts, observations, jot them down. We should have time. Audio segment number two, Negroes with kinky hair in Brazilian soccer context of white supremacy. Chapter six, part four. In the beginning, while the emotion of the game lasted, Brazilians called Mr. Ellis a thief like Mario Viana, 1938, was repeating itself. Perhaps it was for this reason, due to the memory that arose from 1938, that suddenly and unexpectedly, Brazilians felt ashamed. The referee excuse was an old one, and what the man with the whistle did on the field had not mattered so much. Bit by bit, the Brazilian fans had acquired an understanding of sportsmanship what in earlier days had been a weapon of the bigwigs, infallible in distracting the attention of fans with their heads hanging low, 
The request for the nullification of a match had become ridiculous enough that no one dared to use it anymore. Of an importance not yet adequately analyzed is the influence of sports, particularly soccer, on political life in Brazil. The roles had been reversed because when soccer was taking its first steps, it had to look to national politics in search of a model, thus the annulment of games similar to the verification of those elected to Congress by the mathematician Pereira Lopo. A club won a game and had to fight for the win to be counted, like a deputy after winning in an election. In 1950, they tried to avoid Getulio Vargas taking power as the president of the republic with the thesis of the absolute majority a thesis that even had a military apparatus to make it valid. It did not triumph because of a sporting principle. One does not change the rules of the game after the competition is over. And more than that, the phrase that everyone understood to be on the lips of every fan, the game one wins is on the field. And yet the greatest shame Brazilians felt was regarding the referee's whistle in Zurich, equal to that felt in 1939 after the Brazilian victory under the three bars against the Argentinians. To stop their blushing, Brazilians began to excessively admire the Argentinians. They would do the same with the Hungarians. After the river platism came the Magyarism. Soccer was Hungarian. The curious thing is that this was more for whites than mulattoes or blacks. The ones who kicked in Zurich, who hit, who threw their cleats, were the whites, just the whites. The mulattoes and blacks remained quiet. They had paid, more than once, the debt of July 16. In the whole game against the Uruguayans, they did not argue at all. But against the Hungarians, they just felt themselves to be soccer players. A mulatto would tremble before the first Hungarian goal, Pinheiro. A black player would end up irritating the Brazilian fans who traveled with the side through his slipping and sliding around the field, Didi. They surrendered to the war of nerves which the Brazilians themselves triggered by calling the Hungarians ghosts. This explains the immobility of Castilho, glued to the ground with leaden feet for the second Hungarian goal and the raw nerves of Nilton Santos who reacted to a kick with a slap, and the desperation of Humberto who, lost, tried to save himself by kicking Coxus in the back. Those who complained about Castillo remained on the bench in 1950, giving the position to Barbosa, now asked why Veludo had been left out. All the Hungarian goals were made from within the six-yard box, and within the box there was no better goalkeeper than Veludo. He could be beaten from a distance because he did not have the attention of Castillo, who would be moving around under the three bars with the ball in the midfield. And Veludo had provided the greatest proof of having nerves of steel in Asuncion, when Brazil was playing a World Cup qualification match against Paraguay. During every Paraguayan attack, the wooden grandstand behind Veludo's goal seemed on the verge of collapse. Paraguayan fans were thrown onto the field. 
Veludo did not get worried. He grabbed the ball with his hands of steel, confronting, at the same time, Paraguayan players and fans. Ah, if Veludo had only played against Hungary. There came something like a nostalgia for the black man, perhaps to repair the injustice of 1950. The fans of Flamengo had accused Zeze Moraira of leaving another black player out, Rubens. And even for those who were not for Flamengo, a doctor, Rubens, was lacking in Zurich. That was what they called him, Dr. Rubens. He liked to do long dribbles. It seemed as if he held the ball with a string or a rubber band attached to his cleats, because the ball, which he poked to the right and to the left, would always return, and quickly, to his feet. He was a stocky black man. He recalled a Mongol in his narrow, almond-shaped eyes, his thin mustache falling, droopily, around the corners of his mouth, his long and large trunk, his short legs. One day, Nielsen Sintra drove his car right into a post just because he saw Dr. Rubens walking on the sidewalk. He did not walk like just any mortal. He would bring one foot forward slowly, let it rest on the sidewalk, and then bring forward the other, shaking his body as if he were dancing. It was not a samba, although the body of Dr. Rubens was swinging in a samba rhythm. His torso was half-twisting, bringing back a contracted arm. It was the sway of a hustler, of a celebrant in an Afro-Brazilian religious ritual. It was just that this celebrant knew that he was Dr. Rubens, in front of the fans and in the street, and for everybody who was rooting for him and Flamengo. He posed as Dr. Rubens. Nielsen Sintra had never seen anything like it. There were players who, after a win, would get drunk. In earlier times, Kakshambu had walked down Rio Branco Avenue with the ball under his arm. Grinning with his teeth made wider by his black and bushy mustache, but without looking to either side, just wanting to feel everyone looking at him and pointing, thinking, that is Kashambu. Kashambu was white with Syrian blood in his veins. Dr. Rubens was black. And Nielsen Sintro followed him, fascinated, until he ran his car into a post. Someone who did not like Dr. Rubens' pose was Fletas Solic, now owner of the Champions, the team that Flavio Costa had abandoned in order to get Vasco's squadron was now champion twice over, soon to be thrice over. Flavio Costa was offended a bit by the choice of a Paraguayan to fill his place at Flamengo. He gave an interview to sum up all his arguments in one. The Paraguayan soldier went barefoot. He would do guard duty on the Brazilian-Paraguay border, barefoot and holding a stick rifle. And that was how Flamengo returned to being champion. At first, it seemed that Flavio Costa was right. Flamengo kept losing. They were going to reach nine years without a title. This was when José Alves de Moraes took Father Goyis to the big house of Gavea, where the players of Flamengo gathered. Father Goyis went with a word of St. Judas Thaddeus for the desperate red and black players. In the name of St. Judas Thaddeus, I guarantee that Flamengo will be champion. 
but it would be necessary for Gilberto Cardoso, Sir Flietas, and the players to go to Cosme Veljo to light candles for the saint to show that they believed in him. On Sunday, everyone went, the black players with Dr. Rubens as their standard bearer, making a point of staying right in front. Each one lit his candle, praying with his eyes closed and head down. And Flamengo was champion, which provoked a protest of the Fluminense fans against Father Goiz. What a priest had to do was say his mass and not interfere in championships, much less in the name of a saint as powerful as St. Judas Thaddeus. Father Goiz then promised a repeat. Flamengo will be champion for a second time in a row. After the repeat, Fluminense fans sent a petition to Cardinal Dom Jaime Camara. They were believers in St. Judas Thaddeus, whose chapel was even located there in Cosme Veljo, two steps from Fluminense. Father Goiz, who had received the repeat champion sash like a player, got angry for good. In the name of St. Judas Thaddeus, a guarantee of a third championship in a row for Flamengo. The red and black players no longer went so much to the chapel of St. Judas Thaddeus. They had the word of the saint. The saint was not going to fail to live up to his word. The red and black fans themselves, who went around with rosaries with red and black beads, distributed by Father Goes, was singing in the grandstands at the time of Flamengo's win. Dr. Rubens ordered Flamengo to win. On the night of the decisive game, Sir Fletas barred Dr. Rubens. He replaced him with Dida, and Dida scored four goals. It was the fall of an idol. Previously, few people would have thought Sir Fletas capable of something like that. Paulinho, another black player, kept out on the big night of the third consecutive championship went as far as cracking up laughing in the changing room. He went back and forth repeating, I was kept out. Sir Fleta is crazy. But it was not color that barred Rubens or Paulinho. Flamengo was full of mulatto and black players. What Sir Fletas wanted was for Rubens to forget he was Dr. Rubens, to play as if he were not yet a doctor, for Paulinho to fight, like the boys of the childhood garden of Flamengo, Gavea's nursery. Sir Fletas liked to scandalize half his listeners by saying that there were boys capable of substituting for even Dr. Rubens, and he didn't keep it at just words. If Flamengo lost, Dr. Rubens would do a pilgrimage to the newspapers. The press would not let an occasion like that pass by, but Flamengo won and Dida remained in the spot of Dr. Rubens. Another great black player would fall in that year of the third championship of Flamengo, Veludo, and precisely in a fla flu. He swallowed a ball from far out and put his hands on his head when he saw the ball go in. For Mario Polo, this was proof that he was bought. The goals kept going in and Fluminense lost by six. When the game was over, in the desolation of the changing room, the tricolor players looked at Veludo like prosecutors at a criminal. 
Veludo did not meet their gazes. He knew what they were thinking about him. How to defend himself? For the tricolors, his head hanging low was another proof that he had been bought. And no proof at all was necessary. A soccer player has to be like Caesar's wife, above all suspicion. It was enough for mistrust to insinuate itself into the soul of the fan for it to transform into that terrible monster that inhabited the heart of Othello. Fluminense sent Veludo away. If Veludo drank, then he would drink more. It was said that he would not leave Lapa getting plastered. For Veludo, the descent had begun, or his time on the sidewalk, because he walked from club to club as if in circles. The club that sent for him forgot for a moment that Fluminense distrusted him, only to remember when Veludo fenced the first chicken. Then everything repeated itself once more. In the dressing room, Veludo felt those gazes fixed upon him, scrutinizing his soul. Veludo might have asked if there was a goalkeeper who did not fence a chicken. Every goalie made mistakes. However good he was, why did he not have the right to fence a chicken? Benicio Ferreira Filho always used to say that the great advantage of Castillo was the ability to fence once in a while his chicken. We look and see little feathers behind the ball, and if you take a whiff, you can even smell the unmistakable odor of a chicken coop. This was the right that Veludo did not have. If he fenced a chicken, he immediately became a suspect. The mistrust of Fluminense would arise. How could Fluminense get rid of a goalkeeper like Veludo if they had no proof? And the truth was that there was no proof. Even if they wanted to look for it, Fluminense knew very well they wouldn't find it. They could not, however, keep a player whom they did not trust. Veludo became a wandering Jew of soccer, fleeing the curse without ever finding rest, or only finding it in poverty, when no club, not even a small one, wanted him as a goalkeeper. This was what everyone refused to see. The soccer player lived under constant threat. He might meet his end from one moment to the next, However long he lasted, he knew he was condemned. The higher he was, the worse. Carrero, the Rui Barboso of soccer, was seen sleeping beneath a bench in a public plaza. One spoke about this in hushed tones, as if it were a secret. Why say again the name of Carrero? The player, who was at the end of his career, left glory for an anonymous existence. A tragedy was necessary, like that of Maneco, the Sasi of Tico Tico no Fuba, to make him again a name in print. Maneco took Formicide to delay for a day being evicted from his house. Those who were black felt it more. For years, they had lived as if they weren't black, deceiving themselves because of the treatment they received, that of a white man, only to suddenly dive into darkness. Perhaps color had marked Veludo, not because he was black, but because he was too black. The question of Miguel de Moraes and Barros Nieto, don't you think that Veludo is too black? It had become, therefore, difficult, if not impossible, to take away Veludo's color. 
Veludo could never feel like Robeson, free of color. I used to be black, and I know what that's like. This explains a Veludo withdrawn and frustrated, even at the height of his glory. He wore a brilliant Panama suit and hid his eyes, bloodshot, from Kachaka, behind Ray-Ban sunglasses. Not surprising that Robeson sought to break Veludo's pose. A thatch house with fogged-up windows. Veludo did not laugh. What good did the Panama suit do him? The Ray-Ban glasses. In Lapa, he would get plastered. It was as if he knew the destiny that awaited him, of being the wandering Jew of soccer. One doubt was enough to throw him, irredeemably to the curb, to the sidewalk. Others resisted doubts. Who knows if it was because they were less black than Veludo, as in the case of Jair da Rosa Pinto. No other player was so mistreated. When he left the club, he was like someone with the plague. Only Madureira, the first, was the one that tried to keep him. Madureira was not a club in a position to demand much of its players. One could say whatever one liked about Jair da Rosa Pinto, even that he had been paid off by Botafogo, by Vasco, and Madureira would not lift a finger to investigate anything. They wanted Jair da Rosa Pinto, just like that. Vasco, when they took him from Conselheiro Galvao Stadium, was perhaps going on the premise that at Sao Januario, no one was bought. Vasco was a rich club. Who could pay more than them? Because they paid more, they demanded more from Jair da Rosa Pinto. They imagined Jair da Rosa Pinto running on the field nonstop, soaking his shirt, killing himself for Vasco. And Jair da Rosa Pinto was a Domingos da Guia, playing up front. What was permitted for Domingos, although sometimes there were some doubt about him, was not permitted for Jair da Rosa Pinto, possibly because one was a back and the other a forward. The back would wait, could wait, quietly like Domingos. The attacker, no. The attacker had to go seek out the ball to fight for it. Thus, Vasco opened the door for Jair da Rosa Pinto to leave, Flamengo burnt his shirt with a Dominican fervor. Palmieras took a bit longer to scorn him. Who did not know that Jair da Rosa Pinto was like that? The curious thing is that it had always been known. Jair da Rosa Pinto was not fooling anyone. He had always made a point of showing himself as he was, walking on the field, leaving the game with a dry shirt as if he hadn't played. Hardly had Palmieras dropped him when... Santos picked him up. Jair da Rosa Pinto, disdained and desired by all the clubs, would be a repeat champion in Villa Belmiro. He just no longer had a place on the Brazilian side. He got on the Palista side, deciding the Brazilian championship in favor of Sao Paulo. But he was already on the blacklist of the CBD like Zizinho. Color had nothing to do with the blacklist. Other black players played in place of Jair da Rosa Pinto and Zezinho. Even Flavio Costa, who never admitted both, did not dare to call up one or the other. It is true that Flavio Costa took over the Brazilian side again in abnormal conditions. He had been run out of Vasco. 
Vasco preferred to pay him his salary religiously every month and sign another coach and turn the team over to him. Thus, Flavio Costa conformed to the interests of the CBD. There were two years remaining until the World Cup in Sweden. It was necessary to change. Instead of Zinho, Didi. Instead of Jair, Walter. Instead of getting whiter, the side got darker. It darkened so much that a racist shame was provoked. The one who played on the right wing since Giuliano was in Italy was Sabada, almost the color of Veludo. Naturally, there would be no margin for racist shame if the Brazilian side, as it kicked the ball for the first time on the road to 1958, had cut a good figure. The national team's 1956 season in Europe was melancholy. The team was still merely gold-plated, not yet golden. The defeat that hurt the most was the one in London. Brazilians had not yet lost their colonial respect for the English. In front of the English, Brazil wanted ardently to be better than they were. There is no other explanation for the perturbation of Didi, who needed to be up front, moved back to play defense, as if he were Gilmar. He did not realize that he was already inside the Brazilian penalty area, so much so that he bent over backwards, almost doubling over, to grab the ball with two hands. It was a penalty. Brazil's successful effort to come back from two goals down and tie the match had been for naught. All this, however, became secondary. Brazilians hid their shame about the losses to feel a greater shame, that of Sabará. It seemed that Sabará had chosen London on purpose. At least there was no episode recounted about him in Lisbon, Vienna, Prague, Rome, Beirut, or Cairo. In London, after a practice, Sabará entered the tea room of the Lane Park Hotel in sandals, towel, overalls, shirt, and a sailor's cap. The latter changed by some into a turban. This is the sacred hour of the English, or rather the English woman, above all the old English woman. Seeing all of a sudden, Framed in the open doorway of the tea room, a black man in overalls and sandals appear. The old Englishwoman let fall the teacups they were holding with the tips of their extended fingertips, even as they brought to their wide-open mouths their free hands in order to stifle that quite English cry of supreme revulsion. Shocking! That cry echoed throughout Brazil. How is it that Brazil sent to London, in a sporting delegation, a sabada? What must the English think of us? The English were shocked as well. Since 1950, they had placed Brazilian soccer in a bubble. Soccer was Brazilian. The disappointment turned the British press bitter. Brazilian soccer, one read in London papers, to Brazilians' great shame, had everything a circus had, the fire-eater, the sword swallower, the acrobats, the trapeze artists, even the clowns. It just didn't have that elementary element, which was a team. Nothing, however, could presage what 1958 would be for Brazilian soccer. Quite the contrary. The losses put in doubt again the fiber of Brazilians in general, and that of the black man in particular. Thus, the small significance of a garincha, or a Pele, as messengers of hope. Pele was a boy. 
Brazilians did not have the eyes to see him. They found amusement in Garincha, who every time he did a dribble, left his opponent flat on his back, legs in the air. But Garincha did not give up the ball. Perhaps this was what occurred to many, and the English were right. Brazilian soccer even had clowns. It did not go unnoticed that the restrictions were made more for blacks than for whites. Not even Didi escaped, although, like Robeson, he did not feel himself to be black. He had begun to whiten himself with a romance. Guy Omar, for him, was a kind of Duchess of Windsor. He left his wife and children to pursue a forbidden love. He went to Botafogo, less because of the money, although he had a price never before paid for any Brazilian player in Brazil, that is, than because of the great understanding or great pity of the club of General Severiano. Fluminense was making a point of paying his wife's pension. Botafogo, or the people of Botafogo, were trying to arrange an in flagrante that would take away definitively his wife's pension. The whole fight between Didi and Fluminense was born from that. What Didi wanted was for Fluminense to pay him under the table like an amateur, or that they officially reduce his salary to a pittance so that his wife would receive almost nothing. Once he went so far as to threaten to not embark with Fluminense to Europe, Benicio Ferreira Filho went to convince him, and Didi ended up going. But Jorge Amara de Fretas, the president of Fluminense, called Dide a street urchin. It was an expression that was used only to offend, in relation to a black man. The black players felt this, especially those who could not say, like Robeson, that they had already been black, those who, on the contrary, judged themselves to be condemned by color, like Olavo. Olava was a back on Olario, who was reenacting the revolt of Fausto, or of Aragao. When he played, he kicked everyone, in a fury, as if he were avenging everything upon everyone. Not even the black players escaped the fury of Olavo, perhaps because he considered them blacks who wished to be whites. Not Olavo, he kicked like a black man. He did not even respect the referee. So says Antonio Musitano, referee of an Oladio versus Fluminense game in Bariri. He tossed out Olavo and had to run with Olavo after him. The players of Oladio had Fluminense grabbed at Olavo. As one fences a chicken and crazed Olavo was still after Antonio Musitano. Not even the police could free Antonio Musitano from the aggression of Olavo. The Court of Sporting Justice, with no deliberation, suspended Olavo for more than a year. And Olavo, as Oladio proved, was an excellent person, an exemplary father of a family who lived only for his wife and children. He never managed to play soccer again. If he were from a big club, perhaps, he would deserve a pardon. He was a typical player from a small club with no chance of moving up. Didi belonged to the category of those who had left behind being black. Nelson Rodriguez only remembered Didi's color in order to dub him 
the Ethiopian prince of the ranch. Didi had the grace of a seal balancing a ball on his head. He played standing erect. Only on the occasion of a dribble or a pass did he apparently lose his balance. He did not pass the ball naturally, pushing it, making it roll. He would whip it with his foot to put a spin on it and make it fall where he wanted. That was how he invented the dry leaf. With the dry leaf, he would classify Brazil for the World Cup in Sweden. The Brazilian side had their heads down after losing the South American Championship in Lima and to Argentina of all countries. The first game of classification was in Lima, a tie score, 0-0. to zero. The second was in Maracana, and there, when everyone was despairing from far out, almost 40 meters, Didi took a free kick. It was the dry leaf, the ball tracing a curve, falling suddenly to the despair of the goalkeeper, who had anticipated nothing of the sort. Jiminy Crickets, Jiminy Crickets. I feel like uh, applauding for our narrator. We did, Pele did arrive. We heard a teaspoon. We heard, oh, and he's right there. He's right there. Five, six is bang. So we did hear a teaspoon. And then, as I said, he's going to dominate as we bid this one adieu next Thursday. Negroes with kinky hair. Bravo to our narrator. Uh, Like this. So when we started, I said, man, this is a challenging book because I don't know anything about Portuguese. I don't know anything about soccer. I don't know anything about Pele. I don't know anything about the author, Mario Filo. I don't know anything about Brazil or South America. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. So for all of those reasons, and this book was originally written in Portuguese, translated to English, Jack A. Draper, the third white man, when we started, I said, man, it's kind of challenging. Now that we've been reading this book for about three months, I would say, eh, eh. The names are, I'm glad I didn't have to narrate. The names are a little challenging, that sort of thing. But it's not like I've had to look up a ton of words. Like, what? What does it mean? Most of it's in black, extra black, super black. Oh, double. <laughs> I, got, I got it. I got it. Street earth. Yes, yes. Got that too. Yes. Not that difficult. Just different times and it's a history book too see that's kind of a double whammy most people also read about events that took place a hundred years ago that can be you know not the easiest thing for most people because they don't have an interest but all of that I think is just learning learning and I do thought provoking book Mm. the number is 605-313-5164 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate the email until justice at gmail dot com until justice at gmail dot com see if I can get in some of the folks who wrote in narrator as well maybe she'll have some thoughts as we wrap it all up next week on the program we will Pele will be with us as we wrap all of this up three-time world cup champion Pele that's even like I didn't know anything about soccer right but the little negro bit of knowledge I had like Brazil is pretty good right like they've won a lot of world cups and 
all that, even after Pele, they've won more. And uh, the little bit that I know they're thought of is like, wow, this is a team that regularly, you know, they could win. They could be in the championship round and that sort of thing. Uh, I had no idea it was black players going to the team that changed everything. No more of these painful losses that we have to blush and be shamed about for the rest of our lives. Pele, Sabara, black kinky-haired Negroes changed everything. Where have I heard that before? Let's see. Folks who, that's another reason I say, yeah, it's not that. I've learned a lot. Like, man, and with everything that's happening right now, the schools, the riots. Mm, mm, mm. So our investor, he continues. Let's see. Pick up where I left off. Number 10, page 294. Might also have been the color of the black couple. Oh, we got that. No name calling. Uh, number 11. Commanded the youth teams of Fluminense. Gratum, the black coach, was welcomed at a big club. So he was the only coach at the junior varsity. Did he ever coach the big club seems like black coaches had a really difficult time again where have I heard that before even some of that's in the footnotes I have to share when I get to my notes Uh, number 12 page 300 the ones who kicked in Zurich who hit who threw their cleats were the whites just the whites the mulattoes and blacks remained quiet pause for January 8th, I said January 8th, so January 6th is Washington, D.C. January 8th is Brazil. I said that about those riots. I didn't see kinky hair. Double black, blue black people running amok, mad about the other. I saw people who looked like the folks who were out running amok in Washington, D.C. January 6th. 2021 continuing uh, the mulattoes and blacks remained quiet they had paid more than once the debt of 16 July there will be consequences for your bad behavior you pardos and pretos that's Portuguese for negros same thing DC didn't see a whole lot of dark people out in Washington DC either except the Capitol Police officers being chased and called niggers and coons and such. 13, page 301, Dr. Rubens, he was a stocky black man, a Mongol in his narrow, almond-shaped eyes, delectable Negro, the sway of a hustler, (laughs) of a celebrant in an Afro-Brazilian religious ritual. The most famous Mongol is probably Genghis Khan, 1227 conqueror who united Mongolian tribes variously described as ruthless. Reign of terror, killer of millions, according to ancient texts. All of that, though, just haven't we had this throughout where we got to get into detail about the big thighs and kinky hair of the black we got to go all into their body type and what have you and how dark they are, stocky in his eyes and and he's got the sway of a hustler. What in the hell? Now, if this had come out later by about two decades and he had seen like Superfly or Shaft, I say, oh, okay, I got you. Isaac Hayes and all that. Got it. Nobody. This is about 25 years before all of that. So what in the hell? Come on. Let's see. Number 13, 14, sorry. 
Kaksambu. I'm so glad I didn't have to narrate this, my goodness. Grinning with his white teeth made whiter by his black and bushy mustache, but without looking to either side. Kambu was white with Syrian blood in his veins. Are Syrians considered white? You have to ask someone classified. See, that's a geographic location. In my view, that's never a marker as white or non-white because you have individuals classified as white who were born on the continent. And they will say, my grandparents and great-grandparents were born on the continent. Why am I not an African? And then you have people. I was born in London. My parents were born in London. My grandparents were born in London. How am I not English? What am I going to say? So, I never use that as a marker for, you know, racial classification. That's why I say Mexican. I never use that one either. But I don't know in terms of Syrian. I've read that it is not completely agreed upon by white people. No surprise there. I'm not sure Philo considered them to be truly white with his references to white teeth, black bushy mustache, and his blood. Hey, I will say... I paused on that one, but he says that this is a white person. He didn't say he was passing as white. We've heard that one before. Or trying to be white. He said he's white. Explicit. Bang. No ambiguity. I just take that as, hey, he could have just said he's Syrian and not even put the racial classification in. That he's Syrian with a black bushy mustache that made his white teeth glow. You know, he could have wrote it that way or however, but he's white with Syrian blood. So I take it this is a white man because he's done that. He's identified a number of white people and given their geographic location, Italian or whatever it is, English, German. He's done that throughout the text. Black people are the ones who don't get identified in terms of a geographic location. They're just negros, street urchins. Um, so that that would be my reading of it. I think he's and I think it's just black in general is always black people black color everything is is basically talked about the same so he's had a number of passages where he's talked about black people having these pearly white teeth in comparison contrast to their melanated complexion this one it's just the black mustache even though it's a white person the blackness contrast Ooh, he's got that old niggerish mustache and then it stands out you know like i said they've sold toothpaste and other cleaning products for years with this sort of imagery, you get a black person and this is the cleanest soap. Look at it, buffs me up. I'm whiter, see? Let's see. Number 15. Father goes, what a priest had to do was say his mass and not interfere in championships and not molest children. Har, 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 har. Not going to do that at all. Come on. Uh, 16, 304. Benicio Ferreira Filo always used to say that the great advantage of Castillo was the ability to fence once in a while. His chicken. We look and see little feathers behind the ball, and if you take a whiff, you can even smell the unmistakable odor of a chicken coop. This was the right that Baludo did not have. If he fenced the chicken, he immediately became a suspect. Baludo became a wandering Jew of soccer. Maneko took Formicide to delay for a day being evicted from his house. As best I can discern, I think that this fence the chicken phrase is a sarcastic play on words. Chickens being a metaphor for the soccer ball. Chickens are hard to grab. Thus, if you did not fence the chicken, you let through an easy goal. The suggestion in this case that the goal was let through on purpose. Bribery, maybe. The wandering Jew metaphor may also be a slur equating him to a criminal, a.k.a. Jew. 
The former side reference was puzzling. It seems as if it was used as a pesticide. Uh, I think there is a uh, what you call it footnote or there is a footnote on that one in the text because I went to look it up because I didn't know what that one meant. Uh, former side. Um, oh, there we go. Let's see. Yeah, it's I think this is some form of suicide. Uh, just from what I and I was that was what I was thinking when I read the text. But there is a footnote on all of that. I have to go back to my notes to pick out because I read the footnote for that section to give a little bit more detail about this, where they this was a soccer player after he had retired, broke, stolen all your money. Same thing that happens here. And they go and they're going to evict him. And I think he's killed himself. So this kind of messes up how they proceed with things. Uh, let's see. I finished to all the. Let's see. Number 17. Color had nothing to do with the blacklist. Forgive me if I don't believe you, Philo. I said the same thing. That was on page 305. Number 18, page 306. Instead of getting whiter, the side got darker. It darkened so much that a racist shame was provoked. Naturally, there would be no margin for racist shame if the Brazilian side. Racist shame is going to need a detailed explanation. I would agree. And again, about the team getting more black Pele and all this is this is how they become the powerhouse, you know, international giant. Uh, page 306. Sabara entered the tea room of Lane Park Hotel in sandals, towel, overalls, shirt and sailor's cap. The latter changed by some into a turban. Uh Oh, Osama. This is the sacred hour of the English or rather the white women above all the old white women seeing all of a sudden framed in the open doorway of the tea room a black man in overalls and sandals appear English cry of supreme revulsion shocking so his crime was his clothes he probably had no knowledge of nuances of sacred English culture apparently the white coaches did not think to have a discussion with the team before making the trip this is common practice now so that you are informed what to do new country customs and all of that stuff right they didn't even teach you to read so you miss all that number 20 page 307 thus the small significance of a garincha or a pele as messengers of hope pele was a boy brazilians did not have the eyes to see him it did not go unnoticed that the restrictions were made more for blacks than for whites not even Didi escaped although like robson he did not feel himself to be black. He had begun to whiten himself with a romance. Guilmar, for him, was a kind of Duchess of Windsor. He left his wife and children to pursue a forbidden love. I know that's got to be big cowbell. Garincha, little bird, is a nickname he received as a child because he had many physical ailments, curvature of the spine and leg abnormalities, labeling him as crippled by physicians when they played together he and Pele never lost see what I said this is the you know the era this is how Brazil came to be what we know them to be today getting all these dark the team got dark and then they got really really good uh, his career was shortened due to deterioration of his legs due to his birth defects he died in 1983 at the age of 49 of alcoholism and poverty black male privilege we'll pause there let's see uh, folks if you have commentary star 6 and 1 our caller 2262 did you have commentary thoughts you wanted to share second portion of the reading yes sir um, again thanks for taking my call mm-hmm. uh, 
it's pretty much um, I just wanted to point out. Uh, I guess the person named Robson, he was talking about how he used to be black, and I was confused, like, to what, not just them treating you, you know, I guess, giving you a little bit of perks and, I guess, money or whatnot. Um, how, how would you come to that conclusion? That's all I was thinking. Um, the person of DD, he was called a street urchin. Um, I mean, can't, I guess you cannot leave being black for, not for DD, I guess. Um, the, uh, the Valudo situation, uh, the wandering Jew comment, and I guess it was trying to, I guess, accuse him of, I guess, letting in goals, but they had no evidence of this. Um, I associate that with like, if you're on a job and people are gossiping about you and telling things that are just completely not true, that are unfounded, and how it can just totally um, destroy your career. That's what I was thinking. And um, lastly, um, they said a, a person was put on the blacklist, but I guess the author said it had nothing to do with being black. Why is the list called black then? And that'll be it for me, for me this week. And thank you again for taking my call. So they didn't, they didn't call it the pink list. They didn't call it the yellow list. The white list. Even in South America, it's still the negro list. But it doesn't have anything to do racism. Color doesn't mean anything here. This is Brazil. Let's see. Looking at some of my notes, uh, 6.4. Much obliged, dear sir. Uh, first one. So they're talking about annulling the games, right? We're going to go complain. You all cheated us. So we're going to go get this, you know, voided. Uh, the annulment of games, similar to the verification of those elected to Congress by the mathematician. I just had a good snicker about all this because they said that kind of fell out of favor. Like, dang, they just went through all that. Uh, former President Bolsonaro and they cheated cheated you know that's why they had folks running around on january 8th and such uh let's see one does not change the rules of the game after the competition is over that's why they said they started moving away from this we're going to challenge in court and dispute and all that man that reminded me dr welzig she used to say all the time a fool when a fool learns the rules of the game the players have dispersed it's not exactly the same but it is close. One does not change the rules of the game after the competition is over. You don't learn the rules of the game after it's over either. Grandcester. Uh, I, I talked about that blushing before. I said, hey, that's people that are melanin uh, dominant. You know, Dick Gregory, Lapita Nyong'o, Little Wayne, Zion Williamson. They are not walking around here blushing. Michelle Obama. They are not blushing what are you talking about that is folks who are melanin deficient the minority on the planet to even relate to that metaphor this sense of shame and guilt dr welsing talks about that too uh to stop their blushing brazilians began excessively to admire the argentinians they would do the same with the hungarians after their river platism came their 
Margarism. Soccer was Hungarian. The curious thing is that this was more for whites than for mulattoes or blacks. The ones who kicked in Zurich, who hit, who threw their cleats, were the whites just the whites. The mulattoes and blacks remained quiet. Our listeners said, hey, we know our place. We'll get in trouble. We're not allowed to do all of that hooliganism. Also, Dr. Welsing, she is right here with us. She wrote about that. She said, Arthur Ashe, the late Virginia, uh, that he said, this wasn't life and death for me. I'm not going to leg sweep somebody. If I lose a tennis match, lose at the U.S. Open or whatever, I'm going to go, you know, leg sleep the judge. You cheated me, dirty rat. And, uh, it's not life and death. He said, it's competitors, white people, white men. This is life and death. I'm going to kill somebody about this tennis ball. Hey, what? What? Why is it that important? And that right of the black players, they're not going out, smack somebody in the face with a shoe and all the rest of this. White people. Why do these white ball games mean so much to them all? And the hooligan. This is just an excuse for violence and aggression. That's what the system of white supremacy is all about. And this is just symbolism and release for that. Dr. Welsing talks about that too. Let's see. He said there came something like a nostalgia for the black man, perhaps to repair the injustice of 1950. The fans of Flamingo had accused Zezé Moreo of leaving another black player out. Rubens. That, I mean, and he says that that wasn't it because they had other black players, but I mean, nostalgia for the black... What? What? I haven't heard... I mean, if anything, it's been nostalgia. Make Brazil great again. Let's get back to the good old days when we had masculine white men. We didn't have all these kinky hairs and... Some of our listeners said that's what it kind of sounds like Philo is pining for, not nostalgia for the days when it was more black people. Like, get out of here. Let's see. Uh, This is where he gives the description of Dr. Rubens, uh, where Stocky recalled a Mongol and all of that. Uh, What I (laughs) all of these descriptions, uh, the homoeroticism of all of this and then food. Uh, almond shaped eyes I don't even know if his eyes were shaped in that way I would have to see it Uh, and just all of this the large trunk and short all of that what uh, Dr. Gerald Horn said about white men being able to put themselves even we had Dr. Oates on the program and he talked about that sexualized gaze of white men and he was talking about tackle football but football whatever form white men sexually gazing at black players and it's just all it's dripping off of every paragraph whole book that's what all we've been reading um already got that about the teeth this going to beg the cardinal we already got that about the raping priest talked about that from the very beginning uh, why is this so important we're not going to we just had world war ii we got nazis coming here and here and everything we don't have more important things to focus on than some goofy soccer contest no okay make sure we don't have too many kinky haired negroes on the field let's see when the game was over in the desolation of the changing room the tricolor players looked at Valudo like prosecutors at a criminal Valudo did not meet their gazes he knew what they were thinking about him how to defend himself for the tricolors his head hanging low was another proof that he had been bought and no proof at all was necessary a soccer player has to be like Caesar's wife above all suspicion. Good Lord, the Greco-Roman references. It was enough for mistrust to insinuate itself into the soul of the fan for it to transform into the terrible monster that inhabited the heart of Othello. Wow. 
the Shakespeare. We saw, I mean, wow, we're going the whole pantheon of white, white supremacy literature and what I just said, white supremacy literature. He could have picked any Othello, but no, 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 no. Any Shakespeare, excuse me, got Othello, the coon, crazy for white women, as usual. Emmett Till, Othello, you know, long list. Let's see. Uh, why would he have to be compared, or why would that be the metaphor? You can never trust the Negro. Hmm. Uh, and for this black player, we've heard that, that the black players, you know, immediately is that they're, we've heard that throughout the text, they're under suspicion, they can be bribed, they're so poor, and all the rest of it, it doesn't take, you don't need any proof. Negra, that's all we need. That same type of thing that you have today. Uh, let's see. The wandering Jew. Like, wow, they got so many of these, right? And this is a phrase being used in a book that was published in 1947. Dang, nobody had a thought like, hey, whoa, whoa, we just had all the concentration camps and Nuremberg trials. Maybe, maybe no wandering Jew. We'll leave that. Uh, let's see. He says, Every, the con- this is what everyone refused to see. The soccer player lived on the constant threat. He might meet his end from one moment to the next. However long he lasted, he knew he was condemned. Those who were black felt it more for years they had lived as if they weren't black come on philo he said this throughout the text what would that look like you told us they've had restrictions that were there more so for the black players he just said that in the part we read today that's in addition to you got to behave and you can't fight back and you got to be clean you can't be a dirt bag and all the rest of it and they think you're a thief and a crook and all the rest of it what do you mean They've been chilling. I got my hair to behave and not be rebellious for a little while. That's even cowlick. They even got that in the definition for cowlick. Piece of hair that is rebellious. Won't quite lay straight flat down and everything. We've heard about that for the whole text. What do you mean? I've been playing, you know, soccer for a while. Let's put it this way. Any of the players that you see right now playing professionally in any sport, any league in the world, you can take the highest paid athlete in any of those sports you tell me if they think, hey, man, I made so much money. I don't even know I'm black anymore. I'm Bron James. I'm a billionaire. I don't even know I'm black anymore. I'm Mike Jordan. I'm a billionaire. I don't even know I'm black anymore. I'm Deontay Wilder. Pretty boy Floyd Mayweather. I don't know. I made so much money. People don't even think I'm black anymore. Really? Serena Williams. I made so much money. I don't even know I'm black anymore. Anybody else? Simone Biles. Anybody else? You think? I forgot the little tennis champion. She has a black parent. Haitian parent and a so-called Asian parent. She made so much money. I don't even know. Got a Haitian black parent anymore. You think of somebody. That'll be news for me. Uh, I used to be black. Wait a minute. I didn't get to read the rest of it. Perhaps color had Mark Beluto not because he was black, but because he was too black. We got, how many times has that been in the book? That's one. I'd have to look. How many times has that phrase been uttered in the book? Too 
black, extreme black, immense. Oh, 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 oh. What does that even mean? He was too black. The question of Miguel de Mores and Barros Neto. Don't you think that Valudo is too black? Somebody even asked this like he's got it in quotes. Lord, it had become therefore difficult, if not impossible, to take away Valudo's color. Valudo could never feel like Robson free of color. I said, who is this Robson fella? And how do you know he felt so-called free of color, white supremacy? I used to be black. And I know what that like. You're a victim of racism right now. Whenever you said that. Uh, he says, Valudo did not laugh. Me either. What good did Panama suit do him? The Ray-Ban glasses in Lapa, he would get plastered. It was as if he knew the destiny that awaited him of being the wandering Jew of soccer. Maybe he knew I'm a Negro with kinky hair. Oh, I looked. I saw his picture. This is a crystal black male with kinky hair. Maybe he knew. Oh, yeah, it's back to the favela for me. Once this is all done, I'm just going to be another kinky haired nigra. Back over there, man. Get on out of here, buddy. Nah, we don't have no extra chicken nuggets for you. Get on out of here. We don't have no kachaka for you either. Get on out of here, buddy. Maybe he knew that's, you know, that's what they do to us. You know, once I'm done, could be today, tomorrow. They think I'm a thief, criminal, whatever. Maybe he was smart enough. I don't do a whole lot of laughing. Go drink by myself. Try not to think about all this. See a lot of that today, right? Uh, let's see. They said when he left the club, he was like someone with the plague. Mm-hmm. Let's see. We already heard about the blacklist. Uh, talk about the team. get It darkened so much that a racist shame was provoked. I don't know what that means either. Like, I haven't really seen white people be ashamed about racism. Um, they say even the one who played on the right wing since Giuliano was in Italy was Sabara almost the color of Valudo now again that's you know uh oh Valudo we just heard is he too black oh my god so this gotta be another one like ooh ooh extra super blue black ooh ooh said the Brazilians had not yet lost their colonial respect for the English. What does that even mean? Like, you know, they are such revered race soldiers in the world that, you know, we just oh, man, the way they smack around the niggers. Mm, mm, mm. See what they did over there in India? Wow. We're going to be like them one day. We're going to get our niggers in line and be like them. That's a, that's a white man right there. What? That's what it sounds like to me. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm misinterpreting. Uh, let's see. Got the hole where Sabara goes in and frightens these white women. He's going to rape us. Got crazy Brazilians coming over here and mess up our tea time. Let's see. Um, he says it again. Robson did not feel himself to be black. This is not quoted. Did he write an autobiography? Did you talk to his, you know ancestors and what have you great grandchildren something to confirm this like come on um, he talks about Alabo uh, who is a non-white player black player uh, he says he felt themselves condemned by color like Alabo 
He says not even black players escape the fury of Olavo, perhaps perhaps because he considered them blacks who wished to be white. Now, there's no footnote for that. What? How did you even process? That's what he was doing. That's why he's doing this. He thought that they were black people who were trying to be white or thought they were white or wished to be white. That's I mean, that's quite a bit to say, like, dang, what is that based on? Even if they did feel that way, who was to blame? I mean, same thing, but I mean, wow. And he said, not a lavo. He kicked like a black man. What does that mean? You got to break that one down for me, too. Like, kick like a black man? They got the, I don't know, they got the shaft kick? What they got? The superfly kick? He kicked like a black man. What? I'm going to have to think about that one. Can you shoot a basketball like a black man? He shoots like a black man. You do that? He passes like a black man. Do they say that in tackle football? He passes like a black boy. That one right there. Kick like a white man. Do they say that? I've never heard that. What does that mean? Let's see. Um, the corn. Let's see. Didi belonged to the category of those who had left behind being black. Nelson Rodriguez only remembered Didi's color in order to dub him the Ethiopian Prince of the Ranch. Didi had the grace of a seal balancing a ball on his head. He played standing erect. I mean, that's a lot to pack in a half a paragraph. That's basically two sentences. That's two sentences that I read. Uh he left behind being black how does one do that what does that mean someone Nelson Rodriguez I only remember your color to nickname you the Ethiopian prince of the ranch what does the, what why can't I just be the prince of the ranch if you don't remember my color and I forget I'm black you forget I'm black we just soccer players out here trying to win for our country and go Brazil and all the rest of it why can't I just be the prince of the ranch no 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 got to be the negro prince of the ranch the African prince of the ranch <laughs> what what where is Ethiopia at man I don't even know how to spell that man we're in South America come on and then Didi had the grace of a seal. We said about those animals. The grace of an that's how you think a horse, a dog, a cow, a seal. I don't even think of seals as graceful myself. We have seals here in the Puget Sound area. I do not. If someone had to, you know, pick an animal that is graceful, it would not be a seal. That maybe that's just me. I know seals are kind of dark, so maybe that you know trumps everything. I'm trying to think of animals that are very dark. Seal would qualify, but graceful, really? What have you seen a seal do that's graceful? Have you seen them like do a type uh, a hot wire act? I've not seen that. And wait, blah, 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 blah. grace of a seal balancing a ball on his head. He played standing erect. Now, if it hadn't been all this homoeroticism in the book, eh, maybe I'll let that ride or what have you. But Jimmy Baldwin said that black males specifically are thought of as walking penises, phalluses. There's been so much homoeroticism in this book and ball this and ball that and blah, 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 that, yeah, I'm going to take that. And particularly with this paragraph, yes, I'm going to take that one too. Erect. 
Mm-hmm. The homeboy eroticism, black, ooh, his phallus always. Uh, there were footnotes that were important, and that'll be it for me, and then we're all done next week. People who thought that this was, oof, too much, too difficult, all the rest of it, wrapping it up next week. Footnote number 15 in chapter 6. Years later, Fluminense would take the same care with Gradum, another clean black player incapable of raising his voice, taking over the first team with an excessively big risk. Gradum ended up going to Vasco. He preferred to take the risk. Jamie de Almeida would follow an identical path to make his way as a coach. Important because we talked about Gradum as the one they used his name as a slur. I don't know what that clean black, they talked about that before. I don't even know what that means. I guess don't be a dirtbag if you can try incapable of raising his voice now why is that big bad black male can't raise his voice why is that you the same thing today taking over the first team was a an excessively big risk for a black male nigra next footnote footnote 27 molek m-o-l-e-q-u-e in the original text a racially charged term but one used by Philo himself earlier to describe boys in the street or in empty lots playing soccer and thus also a key figure in Brazilian soccer history. I thought that was so important because this footnote is the portion where one of the white football executives deliberately calls a black player a street urchin. And it's footnote 27. That's the one that I looked up where he has this term Molke, M-O-L-E-Q-U-E, Molke. I, and I think most of us, I've been pointing it out, have been saying street urchin. That's what he's calling the black boys, the black children, street urchin, street urchin. It's, he had been saying it throughout. I know who he's talking about. I didn't know that that's a racist slur in Brazil. Molke, there it is right here. Once he went so far as to threaten not to embark with Fluminense to Europe, Benicio Ferreira Filho went to convince him and Didi ended up going. But Jorge Amaro de Freitas, the president of Fluminense, called Didi a street urchin. It was an expression that was used only to offend in relation to a black boy, because that's what it means. If I'm calling you a street urchin, you're not a man boy. But the term is Molke. I wish don't lie to me. Don't wait till we get to the end of the book. That should have been front and center because he's been saying street urchin the whole time. Now, if Philo uses that term, that's like nigger or I don't, what's the equivalent here in, in the U.S. for nigger? I don't even know what that is, what the equivalent would be other than nigger. But Molke, if that's the term, black boy, I guess that's it, black boy, because they do just say that here, black boy. Shut up, black boy. Nigger boy. Oh, oh. I heard nigger boy during the pandemic, too. So if that's what it is, nigger boy, because he said that's exclusively reserved for black males. Oh, man, don't lie to me and hide that in the footnotes at the end of the text. Jack A. Draper put that out. In fact, put that footnote at the very beginning of the book. There's a preface. We read that. Put that out front because street. Ur- Let's see how many times street urchin is in this book. Let's see. Oh, street urchin is in this text. 31 times that's about every 10 pages that term pops up which is about what I've been thinking because we've heard it so much if that's what that is nigger boy every term every time street urchin pops up and he said that Philo used this term during his life no nah, man don't lie and cape for these racists man put that out front let us know oh 
he means nigger boy when he says this. Got it. And that's what I was thinking anyway. But make it confirm it for me. Don't and don't hide that in the foot. Come on, man. That's so act of racism by the translator Jack A. Jack A. Draper the third in my view. Don't hide that in the footnotes way down at the end. If that's what it, I even said, I put that in the title before I had said uh, street urchins with kinky hair. I said that weeks back because he said it so much. I said that should be the title of the book. Street urchins with kinky hair in Brazilian soccer. And Pele would be one because he started at 17. Nigger boy. Pe- I'm done. We went over time. We went over time. I'm done. I do not think this book is super difficult. It would just work your brain computer. And how much are you interested? Like, really, as opposed to people that I've heard many of them, Cal's listeners, saying, I want to learn about Brazil. Are you really interested in learning about Brazil? We are wrapping up all done with this book in our study of Brazil next Thursday kudos to our narrator I've learned so much reading this book I would not have enjoyed it or been as enthusiastic if I had to narrate ooh we I'd have been grumpy and like I was like ugh, I hate this it's so hard to read and I'm messing up all these names Woo, kudos to our narrator huge burden off of me Oof, don't feel as black since I didn't have to <laughs> reading anywho joke 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 uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy creator we ask that you help us remain patient under conditions of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white terrorism worldwide help us demonstrate maximum black self-respect every time we are in contact with another black person anywhere in the world it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling calling dirt bags and other street urchins man come on Maleke. I'm going to have to see if I can find that that'll be out to wrap up M-O-L-E Q-U-E. They've been name calling us the whole time with that. And I didn't even know that's like a term. Racist slur in Brazil. Molke. M-O-L-E-Q-U-E. No name calling. No gossiping. No street urchins. We are not making throwaway children in the 21st century. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.